Welcome back to the Direct Video Connoisseur Podcast. As always, this is Matt here, and I am joined uh, by Will from Exploding Helicopter. Welcome back, Will. Hello, Matt. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, be a guest on your fine podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for, thank you for coming on. Yeah, and I, I figured um, we'd start uh, just because um, this morning, so of course this podcast is going to air uh, sometime in the future, so when, uh, when, or is it air or it's drop, right? Podcast drop, I think. They don't, they don't air like radio shows. Um, Drop yeah. sounds more exciting, right, exactly. like something more dynamic is happening. Right, right, exactly. So when this podcast drops, it'll be some much further in the future. But as we're we're recording it, um, there is an NFL football game happening in London today, and I thought, um, as we're doing a transatlantic podcast here, that um, and and with your um, you know your your site and podcast being about exploding helicopters and films, that we might talk about the. Uh, the, the fact that there have been multiple, or I think there's been multiple times where NFL footballs have been used, or American footballs have been used <laughs> to blow up helicopters. There have indeed been. Uh, currently, there are two films which employ uh, American footballs to, to blow up a, a helicopter. So perhaps the best known one of them is in the uh, George Clooney movie, Three Kings, where uh, I think it's Ice Cube, if I remember correctly, um, attaches some explosive to uh, an American football, uh, which he then throws at a, at a helicopter that's uh, attacking him and his chums to uh, to, to blow up. Um, and that's a very, uh, very exciting um, exploding helicopter and uh, use of an American football. But the, the other one is um, a little bit more obscure. It's a little bit more off the beaten uh, track. It's from uh, the 1990 movie, uh, The Last Match, starring uh, Ernest Borgnine, and uh, have, have you seen have you seen that one, Matt? <laughs> no, I I I haven't, and I, I think I, I don't. I want to say I'm trying to think if this one came up when we talked about Codename Wild Geese on your podcast. <laughs> It might well have done because obviously Ernest Borgnine was in Codename Wild Geese, and um, he's he's in this one, and. Um, but the the last match is probably the, the you know if you're going to watch one of these two maybe watch that one because it completely leans into the whole American football angle. So if I remember correctly, the plot basically involves um, this uh, kind of like the daughter of. Uh, daughter of some business, American businessman. He's kind of set in some sort of um, island, um, you know, kind of like in the Caribbean or something, or off the coast of uh, South America. Um, like the daughter of like some powerful person, American, who's out there is kidnapped, and obviously the American government powerless to help. Them. You know, what what do they care about their own citizens? So, what do you do when you're when you when you, when your daughter is is kidnapped in such circumstances? You turn to Ernest Borgnine, who is the coach of a, an American football college team. And, you know, so what does he do? He basically gets he gets his football team together to basically launch a commando raid on the uh, the kind of like the, the military that are controlling this island and to have kidnapped, uh, kidnapped the daughter. I mean, it's, it's, it's so obviously if you, you know, if you're going to uh, have a launch that commando type raid using that type of personnel, obviously they're all dressed up in their American football gear. 
uh, Ernest Borgnine is, uh, uh, you know, uh, is is kind of calling the plays for this commando raid. And uh, during during uh, during the attack, uh, uh, one of the uh, the one of the uh, kind of college students who's who's now embroiled himself in this uh, pops a grenade inside a deflated uh, American football, which he then. Um, uh, which, what, 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 what's the term like? Uh, no, that's kind of kick. Basically, kicks it into the sky. Oh, at, punts it? Is it punts it? Yeah, basically, yeah. that's it. Punts it into the sky <laughs> at this helicopter, which then, uh, which then blows up. So it really, as I say, leads into the uh, American football angle. And so the exploding helicopter is the uh, the kind of cherry on the cake of this sort of military movie crossed with uh, American football. That sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> I, yeah, it's it's funny that the punt, the kick, because we always joke about football in America. We don't. We actually nobody in America jokes about this. I kind of joke in the, just in the sense that like comparing American football to what everybody else in the world calls football. That in American football, you only use your feet as a la- like as as a as a either as a last resort or like as a um a consolation, right? So so <laughs> so punting it it's similar to in rugby where you. You're not advancing the ball up the field, so you punt it to the other team mm. by kicking. The only difference is, is that in in rugby you can actually, I think you can actually play it once you've kicked it. Whereas, um, yes, in, in in American football you can only play it if the other team touches it first and then bobbles it or you know has a, a you know makes a mistake with it and it's a, it's in play. Um, but yeah, you 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 either punt it or you, when you, they kick the field goal again, it's it's you know as a last resort. So th- the rest of the time nobody's kicking the ball. So um, it's called football, <laughs> despite the fact that you know as, as you as you mentioned in these two situations, I, actually no, because right in, in in this in the um in the Borgnine film, actually in that case they are using the football with their feet. Um, but mm. yeah. Most of the time, it's throwing the football, um, and and that's I guess like the biggest. Dif- well, there's a lot of differences between American football and rugby, but that's one is the the forward pass. Um, I uh, when I was in England, um, when we were traveling, kind of I think I think we might have been in York. Um, I, I did a, a school trip when I was in high school that went from London all the way up to Edinburgh, and um, part of the deal with it was that. Um, I was 18 at the time, so we were able to drink legally in England. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, you know, so I don't remember as much of the trip as I probably should. Plus, the fact that it's 25 <laughs> years ago, so that also makes me not remember as much. But um, one of the things I remember was uh, there was a shop that sold like you know rugby, like you know sort of odds and ends, um, and there was a, a Welsh rugby um, rugby ball there, and I thought it was fantastic. But I remember with my friends and I we were kind of out on the street and throwing it, you know, doing forward passes with it. And uh, people were just kind of like, oh, that's, <laughs> I don't know what you get. I mean, obviously, you know, they, they could tell we were Americans, but um, yeah, it, 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 it was for quite a scene. But, but because the rugby ball is so big, that would be an interesting thing if somebody kind of pitched a rugby ball into a helicopter um, for an explosion. Well, no one has used a uh, proper football or a soccer ball, as uh, you you would better understand it. I imagine, Matt. No one, no one's used a soccer ball to um, explode a helicopter, which is um, an an area that I would be very happy for filmmakers to explore. So, um, you know, I, I will gift that idea to uh, to to any uh, aspiring filmmakers out there. Yeah, because the one time I can think of it being used as as an incendiary or explosive device was. Death Wish Five, I believe, right? Where, uh, <laughs> right? Is that where he he had a, a remote controlled soccer, football or soccer ball that he moved um, it, that he used it. Uh, to, so, so, so that maybe yeah, that's part of it, right? Vague he, recollections of that. Yeah, 
There is definitely a remote control. I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't realize it was a football. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a remote control device in there. Yeah. Yeah. Because that one of the things I like about that about um <laughs> excuse me using the um the the the, the foot um you know, the, the proper kind of world football the the non um, not American football um is that um I really like the idea of you know a, a really good free kick specialist can curve or bend it as you know the bend it like Beckham uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I, I love the idea of something like that. I mean, obviously, you know, boomerangs have been used um, to blow up <laughs> helicopters as well. But but I feel like that could be something where, you know, some I mean, I mean, I love the idea of like a sort of a former uh, football player who maybe like, you know, has an injury or something and, and gets like drafted by like the special mm. forces. And like he still has these dreams of being a football player. And it's almost like that's his moment to shine. And like you can almost kind of see too, like the crowd, yeah. like the imaginary crowd um in the back like he's imagining the crowd there you know ready for him to make this free kick and he goes to to kick it and it just like loops in and and nails the helicopter well i mean what that's that's a perfect idea for vinnie jones isn't it yeah. i mean we do need to get that into uh, to, into one of his uh, one of his films uh, immediately although the i was just trying to think of how like you know soccer slash football has been used as a weapon in in in, in films and yeah. i can't really think that it has been done before the only instance i could think of the top of my head is in um the film cliffhanger um yes. where you've got that great scene between uh, craig fairbrass and uh, michael rooker where uh rooker is sort of you know in danger of falling off the cliff and uh, fairbrass gives this kind of great speech about uh you know what a kind of great football player he is and he's going to use uh, rooker's head as a uh, as a as a football and he's about to take a penalty kick right. <laughs> uh, although that scene sadly that scene i think for any british person watching that film that that scene is spoiled by the fact that this is an American film, and so Fairbrass has to talk about soccer and not football, lest lest any Americans become hopelessly confused about what's what's happening in front of them. Yes, yeah, I, I want to say that that term soccer, I think, came from the UK, right? Because it was like short for like social club or something like that. Um, there was. I'm not history. I'm not sure about the history behind it. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating thing because again the idea that American football became what's known as football in America is it, it is it's just a really it doesn't you know it's one of those very American things and it's funny because um, my, my 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 former boss um, who um, she's from South Africa and she was saying because she was, she was living in America for a period of time and she was learning American English and she was saying how one of the differences is that in most cases like. Americans call things exactly as they are, right? So it's like in England, it's the pavement. In the U.S., it's the sidewalk, right? And it's exactly as what it's used for. <laughs> so it's funny that the one one of the instances where that's not the case, right? That football, um, you know, because in 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 the rest of the world, it's literally most of the time is spent, you know, I mean, very little. I mean, you know, other than like your head and chest, for the most part, you're using your feet, um, in in global football and whereas in american football it's again it's the, you, you're only doing it as a last resort you're only doing it because you can't throw <laughs> the ball or run the ball into the yeah. goal line right it's it's a, you know um so it's kind of the one exception to that rule that for the most part americans just call things exactly as they are <laughs> well you know what they say about uh you know american english and uh uk english it's uh, or, or what they say about americans in the english we're a we're a common people um you know uh, we're with one people divided by a common language and uh, i think <laughs> we're pointing out some good good illustrations of that this morning uh, today
Yes. And, and it's funny, actually, because this kind of dovetails a little bit as we get into it. So maybe I can even segue as we get into our, Ooh, our topic fancy. today. <laughs> yes. Because uh, one of the things I think is fascinating, because we're going to be talking about um, two direct-to-video movies that starred former James Bonds. Or actually, I guess in the case of, of one of the films, he hadn't been James Bond yet. But um, but one of the things I think is interesting about James Bond as a hero, because you know, when I was teaching English as a second language, um, the, the company that I worked for had a lesson that was the different, you know, talking about the differences between uh, American and, and UK English. And it had a, a kind of an opening warm up question where you'd ask the students, what do you think the differences are? And they would always say, oh, well, you know, UK English is much more formal and American English is just full of slang. And I think the reason for that, right, is that there was this sort of like the, the English that that, um, that that the UK perpetuates is the sort of the BBC Oxford English. Um, and whereas in America, so many American TV shows get perpetuated that have just, you know, tons of slang um, that, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I think, you know, UK has as has, has much fantastic slang as, as any other English speaking country. Um, but, you know, it doesn't get as perpetuated. And I, I feel like to some extent, James Bond almost typifies that too, that like, you know, American action heroes are always these like kind of down home, like they're, they're kind of these like rough blue collar individuals who just sort of fall into this being a hero thing and kind of there's a, a bit of an ah shucks element to it. And, you know, just give me some beers and I'm going to relax. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the, the, the most common, you know, English action hero, James Bond, is so the very opposite. Right. Like he he mm. doesn't use a lot of slang terms. He's very his, his English is very nice. And um, almost like when we talked when we were on your show talking about Codename Wild Geese, how they were afraid to have Lewis Collins be James Bond because he wouldn't have typified that. And so, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. That's kind of my thought about James Bond. That, that's kind of the fascinating thing is that he almost perpetuates that that uh, that concept of what English is or being being British mm. is. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I can I can see that because you know he's he's always very very smartly dressed. I mean, even even when he's not in a tuxedo, he's invariably wearing uh, some uh, some very stylish attire, and he's. Part of part of the establishment, I guess you would say, he's serving uh, serving you know Her Majesty or His Majesty uh, as uh, as it is now, following the death death of the Queen. So yeah, I guess it, it guess does tap into that um, sort of idea of um, you know kind of being a bit sort of, uh, being correct and proper, which is a bit of a sort of cli- bit of a kind of cliche against um, uh, British. Uh, British people, British films and things. But, uh, you know, it's it's weird. Like, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. Like, we kind of don't really, like, you know, Britain and action stars. Like, we have a lot of, like, I guess we don't really do action stars. And, and our action stars are always, like, I guess, go down particular routes. So we we have a lot of heavies. So I, I would say he's like somebody like Vinnie Jones. You, you'd, he's a he's a heavy rather than, you know, he's in action films, but he's in them as a heavy. Whereas um, we don't really have like people who are, um, well, we have a couple like of martial artists. So somebody like Gary Daniels, Scott Atkins. But, you know, we don't we don't have that kind of more sort of. I guess like dynamic kind of action action actor in the way of I don't know like a Bruce Willis or a Mel Gibson type. Yeah, and you know Atkins is a great example because I know you know like a lot of times when he does his movies with Isaac Florentine, he plays either an American or he plays a Russian in the Boyka films. Whereas like Jesse B. Johnson 
is very keen on making sure that that Scott Atkins is a Brit, that he's you know he's he's from England, that he you know and, and as I think some of them he even you know is specific about him being from from uh you know, was he from the Midlands I think um our um, uh, I think area. so yeah yeah and so he's but he's very keen on that and I think like a movie like Avengement for example it's it's really interesting seeing some of the the ways Americans responded to that movie because so many really loved it right just because it was you know it was something that really wasn't happening in, in, in direct-to-video films at that time. More direct-to-video movies were about, like, having Bruce Willis on the screen for as much as possible, and then, you know, some <laughs> some younger, uh, prettier actor play, doing the heavy lifting and sort of editing the film so it you, you, you didn't get the sense that he didn't know how to hold a gun or how to, to use martial arts. And here comes Avengement, this sort of just like this big, like, you know, kind of going back to a, 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 a football reference, like almost like a kick in the face, right? Like it just sort of, like, <laughs> it's right there. But it was interesting because there were some Americans who watched it who were like, I didn't understand a word they were saying, you know. And I think there's this again that this 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 myth or this idea that like you know all everybody from from England speaks in this very proper you know Oxford mm. English style. And um, I I remember um, you know I've, I've heard people say almost the same thing about the the Office, even though that one's not quite to the level of of Avengement. But I think it's you know Ricky Gervais just speaking so fast and. Uh, who knows why I am, am okay with it because I have a lot of colleagues from other parts of the world. And so maybe I just, my ears more attuned to it, but it, it's a fascinating thing that I think um, there's like a fear almost, I think of making a, a movie with, you know, you, it's one thing to have Vinnie Jones there, like you said, as the heavy, but there's a fear, I guess, of like, can we have God Adkins there? Who's not speaking proper English. Who's got his, you know, who's like, you know, um, using slang terms and, and, and all of that, that Americans will like it or not. And I guess maybe, too, the, the mixed result, the mixed um, reactions here in America may have shown that. Yeah, I mean, there is an awful lot of, as you were saying, there's lo there's loads of different accents across the United Kingdom, um, you know, and say, I mean, it's dialed down in um uh, you know that like uh, like something like train spotting where there's some really like thick scottish accents in there and if, if, if anything they would be even they they're kind of like a bit toned down <laughs> frankly from from what they from what they, what they probably would be if uh, if you were doing that um if you're actually sort of like going up there and, and speaking to sort of like the types of people that are kind of occupy that type of film and then and then and then you got like uh you know like you know i mean all of all of the, all, all manner of parts of the the uk you got london which is such a um melting pot of different different cultures there's all manner of like uh i mean it's a really weird sort of slang mixture of like different cultures as, as part of that so i mean it, it kind of uh you know it's you know when you're immersed in a culture you're more exposed to it and you, you know what kind of gets put out around you know put out around the world i mean I, you you could you, you know you could I, you know i imagine britain's perceptions of uh you know anybody from a, a southern state in america in america would be that they are you know some sort of stetson um stetson wearing uh you know cowboy type who you know probably uh has sexual desires on the on the cattle on their on their ranch but um you know i'm i'm sure there's a there's a greater cross section of people who live in the, those parts of america that uh, you know aren't just interested in um you know feeling up their cattle <laughs> right exactly no and, and you make a great point there too because um i i remember i had a colleague who um or i don't know if a colleague who was his co-worker um at a job i had who was um 
from the Dominican Republic, and her only idea of English, of American English, was from TV shows. So one, she expected everybody to have that sort of generic California accent that um, pretty much everybody, you know, I mean, I kind of have it myself, but like more more people have it now than than used to. But um, yeah, it's so. So she was expecting that. And of course, she also expected everybody to look like they were from Hollywood. And she got <laughs> plucked down in, in Hampton, New Hampshire, which is near Boston. So it was just everybody speaking very fast, like the northeast of the United States. Everybody speaks really fast. But also nobody was pronouncing any R's. They didn't pronounce any G's on the end of words. Um, and she was just completely <laughs> shocked. Like she didn't know what to do because she couldn't communicate with anybody. Um, and and so there there is that too. I think that um, even if um, everybody in the world thinks that you know Americans use more slang and things like that, they still also only really get like you know even like um, I think I was talking with Ty about um, Ty from Compass Reviews about a, a Bruce Willis movie um, American Siege that takes place in Georgia, and. Um, uh, uh, Todd Gaines from Explosive Act, uh, from not sorry, not Explosive Act. That's uh, that's Simon, um, uh, Simon Miller. No, um, Bulletproof. Bulletproof. Exactly, yeah, from Bulletproof. He was not happy with that movie because it took place in Georgia, which is where he's from, and all of the actors doing Southern accents just completely, <laughs> you know. And and of course, for me, as as from the Northeast, where it's not as easy for me to know if somebody's doing a bad job with that accent or not. I kind of just watched the film as a whole and just sort of understood it. But for him, it was completely grating to hear these, these mm. actors completely butcher that accent. So I think to, to your point there, right, like, you know, no one would really know, right, that they were getting that. And I guess it's probably the same thing with Americans watching the James Bond movies is that they just think that, you know, if you go to England, it's just everybody, um, you know, uh, yeah, talking with these these fancy accents and, you know, wanting their, their martinis shaken, not stirred and all, all these kinds of things. <laughs> you know, everybody's wearing these suits from Seville Row and all that kind of thing. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, I, I imagine that sort of Britons fall into two class of people, like incredibly posh type or, you know, Hugh Grant types, or we're sort of more sort of like, you know, I've struck a light, you know, sort of like Mar Mary Poppins type street urchin or something. So I'm, you know, I'm, you know, you know what, Matt, we can all be put into one of those two baskets. There are no other people here in the UK. Exactly. Yeah. The, the other one that I think of growing up in the 80s where, um, because you know, in, in the 80s, MTV, uh, when it first started out, they didn't have a lot of video. So they just went with a whole bunch of, of pop videos from England. And I think one of the biggest um, video tropes at that time was the working class English family, right? So it was always like, you know, like there's madness <laughs> hanging out there and there's the the mum, you know, you know, yelling at them to get it, you know, or was it uh, Red Red Wine, I think, with UB40, where it's like he's drinking and he comes home and it's, you know, yeah. that, that's the other one. That I think that, that was like one of the early, um, and I guess like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you see that a little bit there too, so. Well, I think one of, one of, one of the worst things is, is some sort of film which involves, um, you know, American characters coming to the UK. So there'll be a, an establishing shot of, of a camera kind of going down the Thames with the uh, London Eye in the corner, then some sort of close-up of a red bus whizzing by, probably <laughs> clashes London Calling on the soundtrack or something, and then and and then we'll be in front of Buckingham Palace where you know that, that we where we pick up the story with our with the characters in this film. It'll just be you know seen seen that too many times now. Yeah. Yes, and I think the filmmakers are contractually obligated to have a scene with that American. <laughs> Um, looks the wrong way when crossing the street and almost gets hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, by by some sort of loudmouth taxi driver. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, well, yeah, and I think with the James Bond, I, I guess, you know, as we talk about sort of like the, the image of James Bond around the world, I mean, for you as somebody growing up watching movies, 
what was that? What was the experience? Were, were um, like, like who was your James Bond? Who did you think of as James mm. Bond when you're watching them? Um, well, I grew up on, on James Bond. Uh, my, my parents had taped a load of the James Bond films off of, off of TV. And, you know, when I was a kid sort of, I, you know, at, I don't know, at the weekends or, uh, you know, in the summer holidays, if I wanted something to watch, you know, they would be part of a whole bunch of movies that I would just, you know, I must've seen all of those James Bond films, like, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 times. Um, certainly mo a lot of the, a lot of the ones probably my, my James Bond is probably Sean Connery. I think, um, that, which is just because, the most of the films that uh, that I saw on videotape were the the ones with uh, Sean Connery. There was they my my uh, parents did have um, some Roger Moore ones on there, but um, you know I feel Connery ones are stronger. And you know people like Dalton, um, you know they those films hadn't really you know those films weren't being shown on on television you know because because some of them frankly hadn't yet hadn't yet been made you know because I was a you know as a kid in the a kid of, kid of the early eighties so yeah Sean Connery for me is 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 my James Bond and I I, I and he still remains the the benchmark against which I judge um, sort of all of the all of the Bonds um, and I I don't have um, you know they all bring something different to it and. You know, I mean, I can't. I could rank them, but I I like them all in in different ways, and so I don't really feel the need to kind of say, you know, ah, oh, this guy is the definitive Bond, and you know, you're wrong in your opinion. I think you know, we can we can all we can all have our own favorite James Bond, and you know, we can all we can all rub along nicely. Right. Well, yeah, because yeah, in my case, same thing in the early '80s. The Roger Moore's movies were the ones on TV more because they were a little bit more recent. Mm. And, and so the Connery ones were more likely to be on if like a TV station was doing like a, a weekend marathon or like it was like a special thing to have one of the Connery ones on. Whereas like, like, you know, things like View to a Kill, th those were those tended to be on more often. So that was like my my first understanding of Bond was Roger Moore's James Bond. And then I think friends who were kind of more into it like they had you know sort of you know as i got a little bit older in my, my kind of into my teens they were like no no the, it's the connery ones that you should be watching and i think the, the maybe this is just sort of my sense of it it felt like the roger moore ones they were more likely to have more of the tongue-in-cheek whereas um uh the, the the connery ones still had that element to it but um i don't know it was almost like uh, i mean i mean roger moore just like you know him dressing up it was like he was dressed up as a, as a clown or a mime right when he's uh, yes the, 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 in, uh, octopusy i think <laughs> right exactly and it was just that whole movie octopusy like there's a sense that like sean connery could do that movie but that, like they weren't <laughs> going to have him do that movie i guess if that makes sense <laughs> yeah no that like that completely makes sense and you know yeah that definitely the 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 Roger Moore era definitely leaned more into the the, the comedy. Um, uh, you know, it's definitely a harder edge to the the Connery ones. But you know, Moore's a different. He's a different type of actor. He's a different style of actor. Um, you know, I mean, Sean Connery is a former bodybuilder. You know, former Mister Universe contestant. And you know, certainly that's not uh, Roger Moore was never never of that kind of build. And so I guess you couldn't. You know, you got to you got to play to people's strengths, and and his his strengths was was kind of doing the you know was ra raising an eyebrow and you know making a doing a smutty one liner. So uh, you know you, you you know when you when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> no, no. As we get into these, the, the two films that we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about two later James Bonds, um, uh, Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. What was the reception in England to, to those two as James Bond? Um, well, I probably was a little bit too young to actually remember um, Timothy Dalton's reception um, as James Bond. But, you know, I am a Bond, I'm a massive Bond fan. And um, he, he, I mean, it, he's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting thinking about Dalton because his, his critical stock has definitely shifted like over the years. I think there was definitely a sense um, when, you know, kind of Brosnan took over. The kind of consensus was the the Dalton the Dalton Bonds hadn't worked. That he was a bit bit of a bit of a bit of a failure in that. I, you know, there were obviously defenders of the films, um, uh, but the kind of consensus was that those you know they, those films hadn't really hadn't really worked. But um, what I think is really interesting is yeah is how the critical stock of the Dalton era has um, changed and you know License to Kill was uh, you know this argument that that you know other people have made it's not an original point but you know in, in some ways License to Kill was kind of the proto was 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 the sort of what they did with the Daniel Craig era bond films before before daniel craig but it just didn't quite land at that time because i think people weren't really ready for that sort of change um whereas when daniel craig came along you know you'd had the diminishing returns of the end of the brosnan era which had ended with you know die another day where you'd had invisible cars he was kite surfing on the bonnet of the car i mean just it would just it gone completely ridiculous and so when you did when you when they when daniel craig came along with a kind of grittier more realistic take on bond people were ready for it because they were like yeah we don't want um we don't want any more in, invisible cars thank you very much right. so yeah i think dalton is is yeah he's kind of benefited from the from the from the passage of from the passage of times i mean the living daylights i you know that's a cracking that for me is a cracking bond i'm i'm not I'm less of a fan of *License to Kill*, but you know it. They, it that's a film that has a lot of of um, defenders, and I'm not. I'm not going to tell them they're they're wrong. I can see the arguments that they are they're making about that film. But uh, yeah, Brosnan's reception. Um, I think it felt like obviously there'd been that huge gap between the end of the Dalton era and um the, you know uh, Bro and uh, Brosnan taking over with uh, with Goldeneye you'd had what like a 6 year gap between between the films so i think people were frankly just you know glad to have um you know James Bond uh, back on the screen and then um in uh, and, and you know and in some ways it's it's the Brosnan era is in some ways the inverse of the Dalton era because People, I think, were so glad to have James Bond back that they perhaps overlooked, I don't know, some of the flaws in those films. And then I think there are elements to those films that haven't aged very well. I think some of the more era smut has not aged terribly well in um, in those films. And it feels a little bit jarring um, at that point in the kind of like the, the, the sort of, you know, mid to late 90s and obviously into the noughties as, as well. So I actually feel like... You know, Brosnan's has has done an inverse Dalton in the in the sense that when he started, his critical stock was very high. But I feel like the shine has got off the Brosnan era um, in the years since. 
things may change again in the future but yeah that's the i think that's the lie of the land in 2022 yeah it, it makes sense because i think you know with the the brosnan ones too like you said there's that gap of of six years between them and i think that also um especially at least here in the united states i think it it led to a, a group uh, an audience that was born you know kind of you know we these term millennial um the, the, the millennials who who didn't really Careful. know bond right exactly right we don't get the generational war kind of thing but, but um, <laughs> you know that, that that were too young really for those those two um timothy dalton ones and you know the the roger moore movies were kind of seen as as older things that they probably you know weren't weren't watching and so then it's like you get Goldeneye that came with a huge, with a video game that was extremely popular. I remember in college, um, there were just you know, be kids that you know, my co- you know colleagues of mine. I, I was never good at the game, so I didn't play it much. I'm never really good at the games where I had to shoot people. Um, but I had friends who played all the time. I mean, they would just you know load up on the 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 N64 and for hours they would just sit there and play that game. And I think that led to. Um, Part, um, you know, uh, discovering, you know, or wanting to to anticipate the, the Pierce Brosnan movies and and made those more popular. Also, you know, caused people to to go back and, and re-explore those other ones. And I think, in that sense, it's almost like those movies, like you said, I think they were they were more popular, at least here in the United States. I think because there was like a new Bond audience that just wanted to consume it. But then I think after a few of the movies, those people got a little bit older, and I think, like you said, they were looking for maybe something. You know, now once they understood what the you know once once the movies had been made, and I think I I, I think the other thing too maybe for me with the, the Pierce Brosnan ones is that I have trouble even distinguishing those movies. Like I I have mm. to sort of really think about did that happen in Die Another Day or did it happen in, in Goldeneye? <laughs> and and I think yeah I think there was a bit of a, a fatigue factor that people wanted the the Daniel Craig. I, I guess the other piece too is that yeah film audiences had changed a bit too at that point. Um, but I think for for Bond, it was like, yeah, they wanted something. You know, the, the Marvel movies had 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 hit. hit. There was like, I know there was just a, a change in the, the 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 way movies were made. And I think you're right, like that. The Timothy Dalton Bond, when you go back and watch it, it does it does feel a little bit different because it's not the kind of like fun sort of big tent movie that that Bond people thought Bond was supposed to be. And the fact, I guess, that they were able to make it work with Craig maybe shows, like you said, a change in the in the the audience at that time. Yeah, and I think you know when you have the the Bron- the the Brosnan era and and to some extent the Dalton era, you didn't really like, you know, no other. I mean, James Bond films are the longest running like action movie franchise that that there is, and and frankly, for a long time, the James Bond films had that pretty much to, that pretty much to themselves they were the they were the only sort of players in the game but you know kind of slowly in the in the in the 80s with things like i don't know lethal weapon um like the rambo films i know then like die hard and then obviously that kind of accelerated in the 90s all manner of like action you know franchises you know picked up there so suddenly you know you know brosnan and you know now daniel craig are operating in a completely different sort of landscape of movies where 
you know, you've got the Mission Impossible movies are spending huge sums of money on, you know, big action set pieces, you know, globe spanning plots, whereas that previously was pretty much just the preserve of the James Bond movies. And so like now there's a there's a sort of a landscape where, you know, those those films are sort of competing with lots of other film series that that are out there. And, you know, they have to they have to adjust and, and adapt and, you know, fight that much harder for for audiences attention. Yeah, you make a great point there, too, because even just talking about the Pierce Brosnan effect where maybe younger fans who hadn't really experienced Bond before, you know, Pierce Brosnan was their introduction to him or to, to James Bond, that when you get to Daniel Craig, you have another new group of, of, of you have another new, new audience that understands, like you said, you know, things like Mission Impossible. And it's like, you know, we think of Mission Impossible as biting off of James Bond in a lot of ways. And um and but for I think for 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 newer audiences, especially with the gap between the Brosnan and and Daniel Craig movies, it was the opposite. They were like, oh oh, you know, how is this movie not just another Mission Impossible? And it felt like almost mm. like Daniel Craig, you know. That, I mean, I think the the one thing that really stood out for me with the first Daniel Craig movies is really fantastic foot chase that they they have yeah. in the film, and that was something very different from you know James Bond. Usually, it's like I mean, I think of again like the Roger Moore's where it's like you know he's a uh, He's skiing, you know, and then, it, <laughs> you know, then he's like using like a, a, a rudder. I think what was he using a, a runner for a helicopter or something? He was using it was like essentially snowboarding, but they they always in a always in a always in a some sort of like uh, hovercraft gondola going through the streets of uh, Venice. Right, exactly, and and so this was something very different because it's James Bond on foot, you know, chasing after somebody. I mean, thinking like you know other great foot chases. You think it's something like a Point Break, which is like, you know. That, that's very not James Bond, right? You don't mm. think of, of you know, yeah. Johnny Utah and James Bond don't really go together, right? You don't, you don't think of them as the same person. And, and that chase, that foot chase was very much a Johnny Utah kind of thing. And for them to make it James Bond, yeah, it was like they were, they were, they were like you said, they, they needed to kind of set themselves apart from what else was in the market. Um, and, and it's interesting even now with this world that we live in in the film where we're, they ha everything has to be a franchise that, like you said, James Bond is the original franchise and but it, there, there's just so many competing franchises out there i mean even like this kingsman series mm. that they do where it's almost like they're trying to create a different version of james bond even to compete with james bond um that yeah that that, that, that there's been more of a, a need to innovate with james bond i think with with the daniel craig ones that that wasn't there for the previous ones well, and, and there's also going to be a, an interesting um period i think for the james bond um, you know, franchise, you know, coming up because soon, if I'm if I'm correct in my understanding, like uh, you know, many of the books are going to be out of copyright, which would mean that other people would be free to do their own, like James Bond, James Bond, James Bond movies. So um, it'll it will be now. I, I have. They, they didn't go they i had read an interview with barbara broccoli who obviously looks after the franchise and she is saying yeah we're kind of we're ready for the post um you know copyright copyright era but quite how yeah she obviously didn't go into any details about how they're going to kind of defend their t their territory but um yeah much like say a character much like say like a character sherlock holmes which is now you know completely out out of copyright anyone can kind of come up with their own take 
interpretation of the of that particular character kind of mo- we're moving towards that with the james bond film so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what um yeah what what happens there and and you know are we going to get kind of right are we going to have a future with rival james bonds happening simultaneously yeah you know that really brings up a fantastic point because before C- casino royale came out uh, quentin tarantino was an inter- interview where he went to the the uh, people that, that that handled the James Bond franchise and said he wanted to do Casino Royale and he had this really great plan for it and they told him that they felt his directing style would create a a, a quality level that they didn't want um, that they <laughs> they didn't want an auteur directing James Bond they wanted I guess just somebody and which I guess kind of makes sense right because when you have these franchises you want to be able to tell the director what to do you don't want to have the director mm. calling the shots but now you wonder, I mean, could this be, you know, Quentin Tarantino's 11th film or whatever, you know, James Bond <laughs> in Casino Royale. That could be really fascinating to see what, what he, so so on the one hand, I get, I know what you'd be like, we could have like a whole bunch of direct-to-video asylum James Bond movies. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, like completely kill our sensibilities. But on the other Kasper hand. Casper Van Dien is James Bond. <laughs> I have never heard Casper Van Dien's English accent, but I would love to hear. Or, or they maybe, maybe do like the King Ralph approach with him, where it's like, you know, like all the James Bonds have been killed off, and they need to go to like some relative in America. You know, he's like, right, right, like he's just like an American, and so yeah, they do the whole repeat like of him learning about England while he's becoming James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm really warming to this idea. I, know, like, so, we, we I mean, it's some... absolute blasphemy, but I kind of like it. And so this, you're right. It could, it's, it's a very interesting idea, and yeah, it, it the the idea of like what could be done with with James Bond when when the copyright goes away, it, it, like you said, it's going to force the the people that are running the franchise to even be even more innovative than than they are now. Yeah, or they try and get themselves. Um, they try and spread their tentacles out into kind of like other areas before those other people, before the asylum um, start uh, start making, uh, you know, the American James Bond films. Um, you know, so so you you know the the you know something they they've always been very focused on on cinema films. So maybe before the copyright runs out, they create some sort of television series, whether that's like with James Bond or with some other character that is in those those films whether they try and basically sort of um occupy the territory so that you know people who might have an idea of yeah now it's out of copyright we'll kind of do a you know young james bond or something or whatever or 60s james bond whether they try and occupy that territory whilst they've got kind of the you know the the keys to the franchise so to speak um yeah, who knows? They're 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 not saying what their what their plan is, and you can completely understand why. But right. yeah, just just create some interesting sort of yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what they do to kind of defend the their turf and territory. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to see what happens there. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, well, yeah. Why don't we get stuck in in the films here? So uh, we made the decision to go chronologically. So of the two films, we're going to be talking about. Um, one is Livewire, which came out in 1992 with uh, with Pierce Brosnan, and then the second one we'll be talking about is Made Men, or Made yeah Made Men, right? Not Made Man, um, Made Men, with, uh, which has <laughs> not uh, Made Marion either, right? Exactly, exactly. But it has uh, Timothy Dalton in it, and also uh, one of our our faves, uh, uh, Jim Belushi <laughs> as well. So so I think we'll have a lot of fun to chat about there. So so we'll start with with Livewire, and I'll just do a quick synopsis. Um, Pierce Brosnan plays a um, bomb expert in Washington, D.C., 
and uh, he's going on some hard times. His daughter dies. Uh, he's estranged from his wife. His wife, because it's D.C., is dating a, uh, a senator, played by Ron Silver. Um, and at the same time, um, another senator blows up in a cafe, and nobody can really figure out how he blew up, what's going on here. But it turns out that Ben Cross has uh, employed a scientist to create a formula that creates an explosive using whatever materials that you can put in a liquid, and then when it's ingested, it mixes with the acid in the stomach and turns the human into a bomb. And so once Pierce Brosnan has discovered that this is what's happening, it's a race against time to see if they can stop Ben Cross from making this, uh, you know, doing doing any more damage than he's he's already done. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I guess I think that's that that kind of I don't know if there's anything else in that plot that I missed there, but that's I think that's kind of the, the the gist of it. No, I think you did a pretty good job of uh, of uh, explaining a <laughs> fantastically high concept film <laughs> where water. Is an explosive. Right. And the funny thing, of course, is that, you know, this, this film ended up being a little bit more prescient than we thought because, you know, after 9 11, um, uh, there's uh, somebody who tried to create, I guess, or supposedly had uh, explosive materials within liquids. And so now we have this entire system here in the United States where uh, you can't bring liquid. I don't know if it's yes. the same in other parts of the world, but. Yeah, it it uh, allows the uh, the airports to jack up prices on on water <laughs> unless you're, you're like me. I finally you know broken down. I got myself a water bottle that I carry through security and then fill up with the uh, the uh, um, at the water fountains that they have there. But it it's it so it ended up being a, the case that you know it's almost like they they took from this movie and said yeah let's figure out a way to make it even more onerous <laughs> on people going through security in the U.S. and make them pay even more at the airport for things that they don't need. Well, this this film it's kind of a time capsule, as you say, um, because the 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 opening of this film it begins with a sort of stock, you know, some a message on the screen saying that you know in the last ten years, three and a half thousand people have been killed by terrorism, and there's a like stock footage shots from like Lockerbie from the Beirut embassy bombing, the Achille Laro hostage. Um, crew, the cruise ship that was like uh, taken over by a, uh, I think it was Palestinian, um, uh, Palestinian uh, group, and and but but the kind of I say the thing that dates it is that there's a sort of part of the message that comes up is that you know but it says but America during this time America has been has been completely safe due to our excellent sort of you know law enforcement um, agencies and and but. But, you know, that safety is now threatened because, you know, Ben Cross has managed to turn water into an explosive. So there's like there's, there is no way of stopping terrorists now that water could be used to to blow people up. So obviously the idea that America, um, you know, would be safe from terrorism, obviously, uh, you know, later on in the 90s with um, the uh, what was the the attack on the FBI building? I, I forget where oh, that's. Right. Uh, where that happened, whether it was either domestic terrorists or obviously later with with 9/11, um, with international terrorism, obviously, obviously that idea was uh, was was kind of changed. But uh, at this happy point in 1992, when Livewire came out, the idea that terrorism could ever ever touch, uh, you know, Americans on home soil was was completely unthinkable and had to be explained with some captions at the beginning of a film. Right, right, and 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 it does. It's funny because you know we have Ben Cross as as the the baddie. Um, it 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 almost kind of sets up a little bit of a brown menace uh, concept as well. That it's this, mm. sort of this idea of 
Muslims coming across the border to attack. And which, again, right, because I think I think when the Oklahoma City federal building bombing it. happened. Yeah, I think when that happened, that the initial reports were that it was um, Arab Muslim terrorists. And then it was discovered that like and I, I don't think it took long after, but they were like, no, no, this was these were were a couple of white militant, you know, militia guys who bought a whole bunch of fertilizer and and, and did this. Um, and, and so it is interesting. It's one of the fascinating things. I think the only movie I can think of off the top of my head was um, The Patriot with Seagal, where they used, you know, white militia militants as a terrorist organization. But, um, yeah, this film definitely wants to kind of paint that picture. And I guess Ben Cross was playing because his character's last name was Rashid. So maybe he was playing. Um, uh, well, yeah, because I think that the, I think there is a there is. I found it very confusing as to kind of like what they were trying to do with the villains here, because um, Ben Cross's um, surname is Rashid. Um, ben Cross sounds incredibly posh British um, right. in this in this film, which, again, throws um, another element of confusion into the into the mix. But his the first name of his character is 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 Mikhail, which is like a, kind of like a Russian right. name. So, like, I, I, it's very confusing kind of what 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 they're trying to do with the, the villains here. We then have, as you were saying, there's this idea of, you know, inverted commas, brown menace with, um, you know, he's, you know, Ben Cross is working with Tony Plana, who. Um, I'm not. I think he's meant to be, um, you know, a, a character from the Middle East, um, and he's got this kind of gang, and he's working with this gang or this group who seem to have some sort of political agenda that is never quite, um, which is never fleshed out in in this movie. So yeah, it's it's a. Uh, uh, it's 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 confusing. It's confusing. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, and even the plot itself. So there's this underlying like idea of like corruption amongst these senators. Um, so Ron Silver plays a senator. Uh, Philip Baker Hall is, is the other one, and then there was the one who's blown up. And there's this idea that there was some sort of arms deal. Yes, sort of arms bill that they were passing through Congress that they were um, keen to make a lot of money off of, and that's why they were doing it. The reality is, is that in America, bribery is actually legal. It would be completely <laughs> legal for an arms company to pay senators to push a bill through. And and even the idea, like this idea that like, um, I think they talk about Ron Silver, how could he afford the house he's in with the money he makes mm. as a senator? It's completely fine for um, a company or for a lobbyist to, to pay a senator, all kinds of money to get the bills. That's, that's a big reason why um, a lot of the things that the rest of the world kind of moves very quickly on, like, um, you know, gun control, um, you know, or, um, uh, universal health care, uh, you know, sick days, um, mm. you know, uh, workers rights, things like that. Those things don't really happen in the United States because, you know, a lot of senators, it's it's sort of, you know, behooves them to vote against <laughs> them because they're, they're making a good amount of money. So the reality is that there really isn't anything that Ron Silver would be trying to hide or any of the, the senators here would be trying to hide to the point that Ben Cross could blackmail them. Um, but I guess the idea is that Ben Cross was supposed to get $10 million out of this deal. And mm. for whatever reason, they refused to pay him, which, again, um, I, who knows why that is that they were so because he's being refused, they, they, they won't pay him. He wants to kill them with this thing. Um, but you're right. That seems to be the only like like most of these movies. There's this idea of like, oh, there's going to be a huge parade somewhere. And yeah. Ben Cross <laughs> is going to blow up to everybody in the parade or or like it gets even crazier. Right. Like he's going to just contaminate the entire water supply of Washington, D.C. with this explosive thing. And if we can't stop him, this movie seems to have none of that, which is interesting. Mm. Well, I suspect, Matt, that uh, I suspect that 
20 minutes of this film has been left on the editing room floor because there are a whole bunch of threads within this film which um, don't lead anywhere or don't have an obvious beginning. So, I mean, there's lots of evidence for that. So I, I suspect that, yeah, so uh, quite a bit of stuff was was left on on the on the cutting room floor here. I mean, like let's you know just just give, just to give you one example of that, like the the first time we meet Pierce Brosnan in this film, he's got a plaster across the bridge of his his nose, right. um, and so clearly he's been punched in the face at some point. But that is never you know later on in the film he doesn't have it. But you you'd never have your lead actor with a you know they just put some makeup on it. So that obviously that alluded to something. I suspect it alluded to there was a scene where he gets into fisticuffs with uh, with uh, Ron Silver's senator character because he's in a relationship with you know Pierce Brosnan's estranged estranged wife or there's some ambiguity about what the nature of their relationship is so I, I i think because also later on in the film she refers to restraining order that has never previously kind of been mentioned so i think you know there's probably stuff to do with those relationships that's been left out i think there's probably stuff to do to kind of explain the arms deal this whole ben who ben cross is and why he's working with tony plan i suspect there's also stuff uh, around that that has just been cut out of this film to kind of tighten up its runtime yeah no that, that makes a lot of sense because I, I think this movie um you know all we see on imdb about its box office is this just that it had a a nine million dollar budget and i wonder if this was supposed to be in the theaters, it was supposed to be kind of like you said, a bigger thing. And obviously a movie in the theaters like this would have probably been about a two hour runtime. Um, and we end up getting like, what, an hour and 25 minutes, yeah. um, of which I don't well, even know how much that was just credit. Just to jump in on that, Matt, you're absolutely right, because apparently this this film was intended as a summer blockbuster to be like distributed by New Line. Um, yeah. But it then ended up um, being going out on... Um, uh, a network I've never heard of, UPN Network. I don't oh, know if that's yes. yeah. So it, that's where it got its premiere. So it was intended to be something bigger. So I imagine that when it got kind of downgraded to that kind of network, they probably for their schedules, they're like, yeah, we can't have this as two hours. You need to, you know, get the scissors out. Yeah, yeah. Now the the UPN Network. So in the early nineties, um, I guess this this would have been really early on for UPN, but um. It was in in the '90s. Um, there, you had the, your your four kind of main networks in the United States. You had ABC, NBC, CBS, and then Fox comes in and really pushed those three networks. You know, with The Simpsons being very popular, uh, they got mm. the rights to American football. So it was almost like this kind of renegade approach that Fox had that really shook up the other three networks. And I think there was a sense that like there could be room for more of this. And so two more networks were created: um, the uh, the the WB. Which was um, it had you know um, the, the Warner Brothers one, and then UPN Universal, uh, Universal Paramount was was what they were. Oh, okay. Yeah. What happens is at some point they merge because they weren't as successful as they wanted to be. Um, they merged, and now they're the CW here in the U.S. So you know things like Arrow, um, Flash, those shows are on that channel. Um, one Tree Hill, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I think. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think, started on, on WB, Gossip, you know, shows like that. So, yeah, so at this time, for UPN, what UPN ended up leaning into was more urban programming. Um, so shows like uh, Moesha with, um, with Brandy, because um, that, that was where they kind of saw mm. their, their, their market at that point. 
Um, there was another show that they had at Jake Busey called Shasta McNasty, which was like routinely listed as like one of the worst rated shows <laughs> in, in, at, at that time. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, so this would have been probably a coup for them to feel like they had something that they could air and show and maybe sort of build their brand up. But yeah, it just never happened. The, the market was just too saturated. And so um, it, it still exists. It, it, they still exist as that one as that merged form, though, today. Yeah, I, that, yeah, and I think when you understand the history of this film, like you, you can see why they would have been, they would have wanted to get hold of this because this is something that's theatre quality, and they're able to put it out on their on their network. It's very clear that there's some good money behind the, um, you know, like the the production of. Uh, of the of of this film it's got you know we've got a you know as you were saying it's got a really good cast in here we've got tony Plana, philip baker hall ron silver you know they're always good value to watch and um you know despite i think despite this fact that this film is a um, bit messy with uh you know some of kind of understanding characters motivations and you know uh, these random threads that um disappear or or kind of emerge out of out of nowhere this I I don't know what you thought, Matt. I found this. I had a lot of fun with this movie because the the premise of this, you know, like suddenly a glass of you know water at a table in your restaurant could kill you. Uh, you know, the, I think the film kind of really builds up that into into. Uh, uh, it, it's a ridiculous idea, but somehow the film manages to kind of take that idea seriously and build it up into kind of like oh, oh, you know a certain level of hysteria around it, which is I know it just it's just especially like the first half of this movie. I just had an absolute blast with the kind of how this film was just running with this ridiculous premise. Yeah, it it was one of those things where I think it, it, it when you watch it actually happen in the movie, <laughs> it's one of those things that you feel like if you're at a table with other people and you're coming up with ideas for a movie, the idea sounds fantastic. But when you're actually like in this process of like the eyes bulging and becoming bright red and the 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 convulsions and 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 all of that, and then it turns into this the, the explosion too is not just like a grenade or something going off. It's like like I think you know, Pierce Brosnan's character makes a joke about it, that in, in a way is almost kind of mocking the film, where he's like, you know, I don't know if the person ingested C4 or you know, their their pacemaker is made out of C4 or something like that. But that's really what it is. I mean, these explosions are massive, and it, it is. I mean, the, the, my favorite, I think, because we, before we 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 were, we're talking about doing this this idea for these, um, I remember you posted uh, Tony Plana's death um, on on Twitter, and and I when we got to that scene where it's like the party and the clowns and everybody are there, I just kind of had to give like the, the fist pump like I was excited <laughs> you know, I was ready for this to happen and and it it's a fascinating thing because I think it, it's yeah it's just it, again it's like one of those things where and, and I, I don't know how you get to a point I guess maybe you're you're so invested that you've got to go with it but it, it's, it's an idea that I think is you're just chatting about it it sounds like it works and then you see what what it actually looks like and it's just a completely different thing which like you said is a lot of fun uh for sure <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're just there's just as you say, the the explosions are, are truly huge. I mean, there's one that happens at at, at a restaurant at, at the beginning of, at beginning of the film. The entire restaurant is is blown out and and destroyed just by uh, this uh, this glass of water that uh, uh, Philip Baker Hall is uh, you know is uh, is drinking at, at his table. And uh, Tony Plana has has somehow snuck in there as a, as a waiter. Um, but uh, I mean, I kind of I, I think again another element 
into this film, the fact this film is dated is that, um, you know, Tony Plana probably couldn't pull off that particular assassination like now because everyone would be drinking bottled water and he's yeah. he's just going around with a jug of of tap and i i, I can't see uh you know a senator uh today be, you know being happy with uh with, with something out of uh you know dc dc tap water right right well and this film also has that other element of this idea that the baddies can can insert themselves in anywhere that they need yes. to right they can yes. be chauffeurs if they need to be chauffeurs they can be waiters they can be clowns at at um at at, at events it, it's it's absolutely amazing how they can just embed themselves into everything. And there are so many of these movies that happened in the 90s in particular that it just seemed like, I mean, every Arnold Schwarzenegger movie was just like, you know, where are the baddies going to be? Oh, they're the waiters, you know, with their, their <laughs> black blazers on. And suddenly they've got Uzis and they're firing at people. Um, and, and so this movie really leans into that as well. Why do you think that works? Because, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I, I, I don't, I, like, you, you would never do that. I don't think you would do that in a film like today, because I think people would just assume, you, you know, it's just too, it's too, too absurd. But somehow there was this sort of golden era, like in the 90s, where, you know, such preposterous, like, you know, leaps of logic were, yeah, you know what? We can do this because the audience will go along with it. I don't. I don't know whether it's like a a style thing of you know you've just got to you've just got to be completely confident in your filmmaking and you know what if if you kind of go out there with enough breezy confidence people will 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 buy buy into it or or whether you know audiences now are, are more sophisticated. I, I I don't know, but I kind of I kind of miss these days. But I kind of wonder why. It sort of wouldn't work now, as a kind, but it seems you know happy. But we all seemed happy enough with it at the time. Yeah, I, it's funny because I, I think um, you know I was I was I was looking at the, the film Close Range um, that that Scott Adkins did recently, and it's like there isn't for, for a plot. It's pretty paper thin, um, but it has action at you know at the kind of the ten minute every ten minute intervals, and the the, the action sequences themselves are really well done. And it's almost like, okay, well, I can forgive the paper thin plot because of that. And I wonder if that's what it is. It's like, mm. you know, when you think of sort of the big, you know, uh, action films where you get these like great sequences, whether it's like Schwarzenegger and Commando or, you know, like, yeah, Stallone and like Cobra or something like that, that it's just like the, the action is so good that you just sort of, like you said, you, you maybe you forgive it. Whereas like in a movie like this, when the action is people's eyes turning bright red and like their their innards kind of opening up or whatever and it's a clown being like rushed into like a thrown into like a kiosk and the whole thing blows up it's so goofy that then the, the other goofy aspects maybe are are, are more uh, apparent yeah i th i think that might be or 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 they just you know where everything is so goofy that it all just kind of fits together fits together seamlessly i mean i think very quickly i was on board with this film because uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't know. I'd like to know what you thought of it. I think Pierce Brosnan has the greatest character introduction in film history in yeah. in this movie. Like, forget Orson Welles in The Third Man being illuminated in that doorway. Like, we meet Pierce Brosnan in this film, who's this um, you know bomb disposal expert on the edge. Um, he's uh, there's a there's a woman sitting in a car. 
um, she's got a she's uh, got a bomb underneath the seat, and so we see Pierce Brosnan sort of lying on in the like the footwell of the uh, trying to um, trying to uh, defuse this particular this particular bomb, and um, you know he uh, his head is basically between her but between her legs, and he's kind of asking her which wire he should cut, kind of being a bit cocky, and um, she sort of reveals, oh, you know, I was cheating on my husband, and you know that's why this bomb this bomb's here, and uh, you know Pierce Brosnan. And, um, sort of ends the ends the scene by saying, "Hey, I've got an idea. Stop cheating on your husband and put on some underwear." And it just it's just completely outrageous. And I think from that moment, I was like, "Okay, if this is the film, if the rest of the film is like this, I'm totally on board." And for a lot, and for a lot of this movie, the kind of the rest of the film does live up to that sort of level of just I don't know what you'd call it, outrageous brio. Yeah, because the idea, the, the, the thing that you, the, the leap of faith that you have to make is the idea that this woman cheats on her husband and her husband is so sophisticated at bomb making, <laughs> but never makes bombs for any other reason except for the situation where he's cheating on his wife and he puts it under her seat. And, and how does she even know that it's under her seat that she doesn't want to sit? I mean, like, because there's no cell phones at this time, right? It's not what she's yep. like. Did he use a carrier pigeon to like? And it's on a timer as well. So like, right. why? Yeah. <laughs> like, how does she know it's even there? Right, right. And and so this whole leap of faith that you have to make that all of this is happening here, like you said, it just it gets you into this thing that you know you're going to be watching something that's this uh, yeah, completely completely out there. And, <laughs> and 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 so then it's like if you're going to go on that ride, I think I, this is a situation where I think maybe. The, the 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 runtime helps it though i mm. do wonder if if i watched this on tv with commercials it would have been closer to two hours i wonder how much i would have handled commercials with the movie like this <laughs> yeah, well fortunately uh, fortunately due to the uh, youtube upload that exists we don't yeah. have to uh, we don't have to do it you don't have to work out i mean i don't know i'd probably be be using those commercials i'd, be, I'd probably have been like calling up my mates going hey you need to turn on upn now i'm watching this amazing amazing film with pierce brosnan he's trying to save the world from explosive water <laughs> that's exactly yeah so, now, now talking about pierce brosnan with this you know, looking at the, so what's interesting about the, these two films that we're talking about is that in Pierce Brosnan's case, he was up for Bond, I think, at the same time Dalton was, but he turned it down because um, they were going to, uh, NBC was going to do another season of Remington Steel. And I guess he felt like he couldn't lose that. So he was sort of making up for the fact that he didn't get Bond um, at this time. And he's taking these other parts, I think, because Remington Steel is long done at this point. Um, so it's interesting to see his career at this point where he's sort of trying to make the best that he can of things, I think. Yes. And he actually made, uh, you know, thinking of his Bond career, he, Pierce Brosnan actually made a couple of films um, after this um, for there were TV. There were TV movies where he is playing um, essentially like a secret uh, kind of James Bond, but a James Bond character who works for the United Nations, because obviously, you know, the United Nations has... Um, <laughs> <laughs> has its own intelligence units and you know has its own agenda rather than just being a kind of sterile talking shop um and you know with countries vetoing any possible um international action but um you, you know uh i can't remember what the i can't remember what those damn i can't remember what those two um detonator detonators one yes yeah, he also did i think there's two well, well two of them the detonator one and two that uh that he had um you, 
That's right. Yes. And he's kind of, yeah. So he's kind of um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of, you get him sort of doing an early version of, um, yeah, James Bond um, in, in those, in those films. And um, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting to wonder like where his career, if he never got the Bond gig, like where his career would have gone, because I mean, he was really, I mean, he wasn't doing anything particularly great as i say you know this this has gone to cable those two detonate movies were 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 for were tv movies as well so yeah i mean he's obviously had a he's had a very good career post bond i think uh, better than quite a lot of better than quite a few of the bond actors have have done so yeah it, it would be it i guess we'll never know what would have happened if he'd uh, he'd never got uh, the bond gig yeah, no, no, I forgot. So, so these movies were originally called Detonator, but they were Death Train and Night Watch. Um, That's, I, I thought I knew them as something else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we've got um, uh, uh, Patrick Stewart, I think, was, is the bat, was he the baddie in Death Train, um, the original one, I think? I think he is. He's got yeah. uh, Alexandra Paul plays yeah. uh, from Baywatch. She plays his kind of sidekick in both movies, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think Christopher Lee, does Christopher Lee turn up in one of them? <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, for sure. Yes, I, I was seeing because I, I, I want to say these were TV movies in the U.S. I'm trying to think um, where wh- what they aired on. Um, I, I thought they were TV movies in the U.S. because Alexandra Paul, of course, from Baywatch, she was known for, for TV movies like that was. Um, I mean, I think the one movie I can think of that she did that was a, um, a, a theatrical film. She was in the um, the Dragnet spoof that that. Uh, oh, Hank yes. Dan Aykroyd did. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, she's known for like her lifetime movies and things. Oh, so USA Network. That's right. The USA Network here in the U.S. aired these. Um, so that makes sense because they were doing they um, another USA Pictures one um, was uh, Blackjack with uh, Dolph Lundgren and Fred Williamson. So so they were kind of putting out their own movies on USA at that time. I don't know yeah, if was, Black, was, Black jo- was Blackjack John Woo directed that, didn't exactly, he? Exactly, John Woo. I was thinking it was his first American. Oh, no, no, it was the second because he did a Hard Target already. So, uh, But yes, yeah, he directed that one and he and was working with USA. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so it's it's kind of, yeah, it's interesting as a Bond fan, interesting to see this this film and see him playing these type of, uh, like, uh, heroic uh, characters uh, in here. And, you know, we see... I mean, you know, he's got a lot of charm in this in this in this in this film. He's kind of there's there's quite a few scenes, particularly where he's really, um, you know, he's he's got the he's got his kind of uh, confident charm turned all the way all all the way up to eleven. Uh, there are some later scenes where he's sort of trying to, I guess, stretch a bit of his acting muscle. So he's kind of feeling a bit sad about his uh, estranged wife, and he's he's getting drunk in his his home which is um just a sort of a there's no furniture in there it's just uh it's just, it's just using kind of i don't know boxes for as bits of uh, bits of furniture or something uh and that as i say that that's that's a, that's a very weird scene um and again i think it's weird because it's weird i suspect because preludes to that has been has been cut out like his wife turns up there and it's a very strange scene like it's a very odd encounter because it doesn't it's it, it probably it's following up on something that happened earlier so it would it would make sense but here it just seems just seems very uh very peculiar yeah yeah and and the one thing i, I you know like you talk about with him with the charm and and and, and you can kind of see it like for example where he's in scenes with ron silver that like you know Ron Silver's character has for some reason he has this like like '90s like skateboarder kid haircut which <laughs> like, doesn't really make any sense but 
but he also is just not on the level of of Pierce Brosnan as a, as a leading man. And you know, one of the interesting so the the um his the love interest is played by uh, Lisa Eilbacher, who uh, she did a movie in the in the before this in the late '80s called Deadly Intent that um I I reviewed for the site where her character just kind of gets put through the rigor with like Fred Williamson <laughs> and uh, uh Lance Hendrickson, but. The thing that I kind of kind of struck me about this is that they have a love scene, um, Pierce Brosnan and and Lyle, uh, Lisa Eilbacher, and usually in these action movies, it's like the the it's the action star who's kind of like going up in 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 quality, right? Like that the the woman is you know he's he's sort of you know we we have an expression in America called out kicking your coverage, meaning like you you sort of kick the ball in in football, you kick the ball down the field, and nobody's there on the on the team to tackle anybody or something like that. You've kind of yeah. You're, you're, and and most of the time, I mean, you know, Seagal is a great example, but even like guys like Stallone and stuff like that, like where they're with these women who are just way above their 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 you know what what they could expect for um, to be with. Whereas I think Lisa Eilbacher would feel lucky that she's is having a scene with Pierce Brosnan, um, and that, you know, she feels like she's moving up a level. And I think that was one of the more interesting things for me because usually with these love scenes, I mean, there's a great um, you know uh, jazz sax playing in the background, which I like, but. <laughs> Usually with these scenes, it's like, all right, just get on with it. It's just whatever. But at least it was like a little bit more believable here that like, yeah, you know, Lisa Eilbarker's character would want to get back with Pierce Brosnan because he's he's much better looking and kind of much more debonair and and, and has much more care, uh, uh, personality than Ron Silver's character. But Ron Silver's got the power, though, and he's got the he's got and he's got the fancy house with the with, with the dollar wall lining insulation. Yes. Well, he it's funny. Pierce Brosnan, where was the money that they had for their fancy house that um, that he was kicked out of when um, when his wife left, uh, you know, uh, filed a restraining order or whatever? Like he was in a really nice house that uh, that I don't know yeah. how they were able to afford that. And so that that was another it's another interesting piece that these these government jobs some, somehow pay more than they really do in, in real life. Um, <laughs> that, that they can afford these fancy. I, I, my favorite is watching movies that have archaeologists where these archaeologists are completely like just, you know, <laughs> like rolling in money. And it's like, where do you get this idea that being an archaeologist is somehow this lucrative career? <laughs> like you can be a millionaire archaeologist. But, but that's kind of the same thing with this. He's a government, you know, he works for the FBI. Like, I don't know what the FBI pays, but they don't pay enough to have a mansion in, in Washington, D.C. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, but, uh, I think by that by the time that we see uh, Pierce Brosnan's uh, house, we're, we're I think we're way past the, the point of <laughs> yeah. worrying about these uh, these points of, uh, of of accuracy within the film. But what I did, one thing about this film that I did appreciate was, you know, um, the way that it really ran with water as a as a theme yes. in, the, in, in this particular film. And you know, obviously, whoever wrote the script for this had been paying attention in their um, you know their kind of uh, film writing classes because obviously you know pierce brosnan's character is is you know his relationship with his wife has 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 broken down because of the tragic death of of his daughter how did she drown how did she die she drowned obviously and then throughout the film you know we see uh like kids playing in like a fire hydrant that they've kind of like opened up and there's um you know, a street cleaning. There's a, I think it's that scene where the uh, Philip Baker Hall gets kind of like bumped off as, as he's driving off or something. There's a, the kind of in the, in the, in the same shot, there's a, one of those kind of street cleaning trucks just pointlessly spraying the road with water for whatever reason, you know, 
councils or local authorities do that um so it kind of really really kind of crowbars that water angle into uh, into the into the into this film uh but i kind of i kind of appreciated its commitment to its concept yeah i think there are a lot of those elements to this that i think really worked in that sense that right like you said it's the, sort of the commitment to it um whether it's that it's the um you know the the the, the issues with the wife which again were kind of weird because it was almost like you know, he, we're, we're understanding that he's married to this woman and, and had a child with this woman. Yet it seems like a lot of times when they're seeing each other, they were like old flames that uh, were, had, had, had a, you know, as opposed to like they just split recently. Um, yeah. It, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the, the water aspect in, in particular, because it does seem like it, they kind of, you know, it, like you said, they, they, they bring it back in a lot of places. And it's almost like this idea, right, that like it's it's turning water into a menacing thing. Like, like, you know, like, you, you know, we take water for granted. Right. But it could be anywhere. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, 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 I guess I agree with you there that, it, like you said, leaning into that really kind of added to that menace. Uh, one thing we haven't um, spoken about, actually, and I, I want to make sure we get to it, is uh, talking about this film's goofiness is uh, is the robot. Yes. <laughs> 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 Because um, yeah, Pierce Brosnan's got um, his uh, sort of like bomb disposal sidekick character, who's got this uh, got this got this robot which he which he uses to sort of you know analyze materials at, at crime scenes. I, I mean, I don't quite know why. I mean, obviously the idea of analyzing materials that's just sort of something you uh, you know you you'd put it into some sort of device in a laboratory and it would like um spit out the the kind of data which would allow you to kind of understand what the bomb's been made of but you know for in the reality of this film though that that those types of devices have been inserted into uh into a robot um much like uh, it remind, reminded me of that um that robot that uh <laughs> the robot out of Rocky Five, and actually, there's, <laughs> actually, there's quite some parallels because that robot in Rocky Five is uh, like uh, really flirting with um, what's his name with uh, Uncle with Paulie. Yes, yes, and, that's right. And, that's right. <laughs> and in this and in this film, this this robot is constantly um, sexually harassing Pierce Brosnan. It's always goosing him at every opportunity, and uh, <laughs> Pierce Brosnan's going, "Oh, for God's sake, get this horny can of tuna under control." <laughs> Exactly. And I always joke, and this movie really leans into that part as well. I always joke that there are two areas of sort of magic in science fiction that action movies employ. Like one is the ninja, right? The ninja can do magic. <laughs> they can, you know, puff a smoke and they disappear, all that kind of thing. But also computers, right? Computers can do magic. I always, my line is always that computers can do anything they want until they can't, right? Until, you know, it's like <laughs> they can do whatever we want them to do until they can't. And, and in this film, it's like almost like this idea of like, we don't want to spend too much time in a lab waiting for results to come back. So let's just have the computer do it. It's almost like the old Batman series, right? Where he would like, <laughs> have this big computer and he and Robin would like get some sort of chemical from one of the baddies and they would run it through this thing. And it's like, you know, some beeps and stuff would go off and then a little piece of paper would come out, you know, and there's Adam West like, oh, just as I expected, you know, the, the bat analyzer told, you know, it's like it's like that kind of idea. And. You, it's like in, in the film, when, when um, one of the explosions happens in front of Pierce Brosnan, he suspects that it's the water. And fortunately, this jug of water survived the, the, the explosion. <laughs> and he was able to pour some of the water into the, the robot's analyzing tray. And immediately it, it came back that, yes, this is this is not good. Yeah, I, as, as you say, I, I do. Yeah, it's uh, a bit of a bit of magic. I, I do. 
I do uh, get very irritated by uh, computers as magic devices. I think I feel it's gone too far these days where <laughs> like, you know, oh, we need to get into this building and, you know, somebody with spectacles just, you know, rattles on a keyboard and like a door pops open. I mean, just, oh, uh, you know, like, why, why are we even bothering with this scene if it's going to, you know. Right, right. Yeah, it's 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 an amazing concept. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Now, as we before we we move on to the other film, anything else about this one that you wanted to mention? I have one little piece that I wanted to mention that that happens in the film. Um, I think probably the only thing I want to mention is um, this film was uh, directed by uh, Christian uh, Dugay. I think he's, I believe he's uh, French. And uh, he directed a film which uh, I hope any self-respecting exploding helicopter fan has seen called extreme ops which is the uh kind of extreme sports stars versus terrorists uh movie that uh, you've always wanted to see it's kind of yeah it's sort of die hard on a mountain but with um yeah extreme sports stars versus terrorists and it's it's as good as that as that sounds yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of snowboarding in, in, yes. in this film. Yeah, and, and and like like kind of like um, like baggy jeans or wide leg jeans that were popular at that time. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's 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 O two, but it feels like I don't know if you can hear the sirens going on behind me here that uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the fire station here. And, um, but um, yeah, it, it it's the, that kind of movie in in O two that is dealing with things that were popular in 1997. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you about the fashions. Uh, it was a, it's a sort of film that you, you watch and you just think, why can't everybody just wear a belt? Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. It, you're right. I, I, I didn't even consider that part that like, yeah, he, it's almost like he, takes this movie, I mean, this is 10 years later that, that, that Extreme Ops comes out, but there, there's almost a sense of him leaning into like what he did here and just, yeah, continuing to, to, keep, to, 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 to move in that direction <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, now, the one piece that I wanted to mention, now I'm not a fan of violence against women um, in general, but I felt like the mother, Lisa Eilpacher's mother, who is like kind of constantly like in her ear to get her to leave Pierce Brosnan. And she's just kind of a, a sort of a, a shrewish um, mm. sort of meddling mom character. And there's what I believe is an applause scene where um, a character um, who's like Ron Silver's assistant, he's played by Michael St. Gerard, who um, people will recognize him as playing Elvis in a biopic here in, in the U.S., um, I don't know if it, that, that movie probably made, made it right as well, possibly, but um, but he is going to take Lisa Eilbach. He's going to kidnap her for Ben Cross. And when they get to, she's staying, she's, she's you know, she's there with her mom. I guess that's the mother's house. Maybe that's what it, I don't remember. But the mom's there, and uh, you know, she starts like yelling at this guy who's got a gun and all of this, and he just like whacks her in the face with a gun. And I felt like that was an applause scene. Um, again, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not advocating violence against women, especially elderly women in this case. Um, and so I, but it was one of those things where you kind of feel like if this was in the theater, there might've been some, some whoops and, and cheers and things like that. <laughs> I, it didn't, it didn't play that way. It didn't play that way for me, but yeah. it kind of, I, I actually had the inverse experience in some ways, like it's a really nasty, like blow that she takes. Oh, yes. Cause I think he's got yeah. the gun in his hand. So he's kind of like pistol, you know, yeah. lashing her with the pistol and it's, and it's just sort of, 
yep she's out the way she's out the way now like yeah. uh, we can get on with the kidnap of uh, lisa eilbacher um it doesn't it, you know it feels like that should be i don't know it feels uh, it felt like you know, the film didn't care enough about her character to even sort of show if she's dead, alive, or, you know, kind of what the consequences were. It just felt ah, out of the way, old hag. But yeah. in, but not in a way which kind of, um, you know, made you like, oh, my God, this man's got no boundaries. Like, how far could he go? It just felt like uh, she was she was just the sort of like, a, you know, a, a bit like a sort of disposable goon and not somebody's not somebody's mother. That's a good point because we, we never like come back. It's not like you know somebody goes to the place and like what what, what happened? Where's where's you know? And then, oh, she was taken. You know, she's got like a bruise on her chin or something like that. It's like yeah, she's just there on the on, uh, out on the ground and and yeah, they whisk Lisa Eilbach her way. So um, yeah, so so that was that was Live Wire. So we fast forward seven years into the future to, to 1999, where we look at Made Men. Um, and the idea behind Made Men is that you've got Jim Belushi as this kind of like shifty mob character guy who's just always lying and always like ripping people off and whatnot. And he's out in this in this sort of like southern small like Oklahoma town, I think, or something like that, where he's hiding out and he's stolen a bunch of money from this mob boss. Um, and they, the mob boss sends guys out there to get the money. They capture him. They take him there. Uh, as they're getting gas, they run afoul of local sheriff, uh, played by Timothy Dalton. And then from there, kind of all hell breaks loose. And it's sort of like this, this you know, back and forth with you know Belushi being chased by different characters. Um, there's there's some meth cookers in the area that also add to the fray. And, and it's one of those things that sort of ends with who's going to get the money, um, who's going to come out of this successful and, and, and win at the end. And essentially how many times will Jim Belushi lie to people to further the plot <laughs> along um, as we kind of make it through this hour and a half. So yeah, I don't know if I, if I missed anything in that plot there again, I'm kind of sort of brushing over this, the synopsis as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I think, I think that's a pretty good synopsis because this is a very, very twisty film. I mean, there are just constant, uh, plot twists in here. So uh, yeah, I, I think if you, you don't want to be, you don't want to be trying to uh, explain all of them. I think people have a good, <laughs> you, you've given a good broad brush, uh, explanation of kind of what this, what the story here is and who the kind of various characters and antagonists are. But, uh, I had never seen this, this film before. Um, I'd be interested to know if, if you had Matt, uh, because I was really surprised by this film. I think it's a little gem, and it it really zips along. It's it's not it's pretty much ninety minutes um, on the button. Um, it's got um, some good action, interesting characters. As I was saying, it's got a really twisty plot. Uh, there's some like decent dialogue here as well, and I had a lot. I had a lot of fun with this particular movie. Yeah, I had never heard of it before either. I hadn't seen it either um, before watching it uh, for the podcast here. And and I agree with you. I think I watched this one first, and then I watched uh, Live Wire second. So I kind of did them out of order. And this, like you said, this is really well paced. There there isn't a lot of downtime in this film. And I think like Live Wire does have downtime. It has like his sort of character development with the, the issues with his past. You know, working mm, with his wife, trying yeah. to. You know, trying to figure out who, who, what this bomb and all of that kind of thing. And my brain was almost like velocitized, like I was like, you know, riding on the highway or something. And suddenly we're going really slow when I started watching Live Wire because this did move for, you know, I mean, it's a 90 minute movie, but I, I don't know that there's really any real like moments where it's like you can relax. Like it seems like every time it starts to slow down, 
we get something, an action set piece or something like that that happens to to keep us moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. We either get an action set piece or we get some new development with a character. Like we suddenly find out that somebody we thought we knew who they were. It turns out they've got another agenda or they've got they're not the person that we thought we were. So, yeah, like every every time the film, it seems like the film's settling down. It's yeah, we get thrown an action sequence or or a new plot twist, which just kind of keeps, you know, really just helps you sort of stay like invested um in the in this film but you know it's more than you know i i just was yeah as i say really sort of impressed with this i think there's like just they've done some simple things to just like really that really just elevate like this film above the kind of you know routine um sort of ordinary fare because this is this is a film this is, i think this film came out on hbo so you know you have certain expectations of of stuff that comes out on, on cable but you know the like the characters in this film like the minor characters in this film i just think were really well done so there's this this kind of yeah belushi is hiding out in this in this small town and then this like uh crew come in sent by the the mobster that he used to work for to kind of like pick up belushi and like this crew of like four characters they're 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 you know they're not um depending on which ones we're talking about you know there are some of them are only in it for varying lengths of time but they're really well defined and the film you know so we've got this like we've got the english one we've got the italian cliche you know we've got the kind of strong silent one and the film like does some you know kind of makes some humor out of that and it kind of leans into the types of like characters that they are to, and in in terms of the dialogue that they're involved in and it just just really sort of elevates like this the the, the film i think that you know they kind of actually sort of spend a little bit of time kind of like working out what we're going to do with these who these characters are and what we're going to do with them and kind of like then you know okay right this is how we're going to make it work yeah no i i completely agree and i think you know, we there's there's sort of three roles in particular for me that that, that really sort of make the movie. I mean, obviously Jim Belushi, um, and this is that time period. I think we we've talked about when we were on on your show talking about <laughs> Royce. Um, this is that late '90s period where he's just he's, he hasn't quite gotten to his that that TV show yet that kind of saves his career, and he's doing these kinds of movies. I mean, he's doing canine uh, direct to video sequels. He's doing these. You know, I mean, in 1999 he has a ton of credits, a, a bunch of films that he did. And, and he just kind of plays this character that, like, you, in, in some ways you're almost liking in spite of yourself. Um, and, 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 and he doesn't make it easy either, right? Like, every time you think you might want to root for him, he goes and does something that's just so, you know, horrible. So so there's there's him, and then there's Michael Beach's character, which, you know, knowing when you see that Michael Beach's character is one of the, the, the guys that goes to get the money from Belushi. And so it's like the moment we see him, we know he's got to be something a little bit more just because as an actor, he's he's slightly better. And I don't this wasn't really a time that movies were made where characters like that or actors like that would have really small parts. You know, if, if he's in a mm-hmm. movie like this, he's going to be there. And then Timothy Dalton, when he's introduced as the sheriff. I think culturally, the way he played that that part, despite you know not being from the south, you know being from from England, you know, and um, you know being from a whole completely different part of the world, uh, he plays that part so well. And I I think he, he must have studied <laughs> films to play this part because I think he, um, it's almost like he plays it as a character that would be in a movie like this that I think also sort of helps underpin the film. And I, I the three of them, and then of course you get like you say these other characters that kind of work around them. Um, the, the whole thing just really worked in that sense. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know Dalton is like brings um, a lot. I think you know. I think Belushi. <laughs> I think Belushi is 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 very good in this film. I think it's quintessential Jim Belushi. I mean, it's it's Belushi has never been more Belushi. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's that kind of you know motor-mouthed schlub who's you know who's kind of gab is just inevitably going to kind of get him into um get him into trouble i mean it's also it's also kind of quintessential jim belushi in in the sense of you know as we talked about on 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 royce you know uh, belushi jim belushi is the embodiment of the doughy white male and 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 naturally the doughy white male in American popular entertainment culture, they have an implausibly hot uh, wife or partner. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the, the the scenario here. But so, yeah, Belushi is excellent. I think Dalton is is fantastic in this film. I think it's he's clearly having a blast playing this role because this sheriff is, I mean, it's a kind of caricature, but like Dalton's like really leaning into, really leaning into it. The fact that this, you know, it's a small town and he's the sheriff in it so he's this kind of big wheel in a small town and he kind of just every conversation he has and sort of the way you know conducts himself is is basically like a peacock you know showing off its um <laughs> off its feathers and yeah it, it just shows you actually that obviously sort of dalton's most you know famous iconic roles is is, is playing james bond but i think what we what we see here is actually you know, because he's playing quite a few of these scenes for for laughs, um, or you know, and he's he's actually kind of he's very he's got a good sense for comedy, and I, I think we've seen that a few times in his career. Like he's he was in Hot Fuzz, which obviously was a, a comedy, and he's done some voice work in the Toy Stories. But I mean, I mean, I can't say I'm overly familiar with Dalton's CV, all of his CV, but you know it seems as i say from this film and a couple of other roles it seems like he's got a really good feel for comedy and it's kind of a shame i think unless there's stuff out there that i'm unaware of that we he hasn't had say but some more opportunities to to sort of do stuff in that in that field because uh, yeah he's very entertaining really entertaining in this film yeah well so the one that I, that comes to mind for me was two years before this he was in the beautician and the beast um where he was, it was a comedy, but he was almost playing like the straight man to, um, to Fran Drescher's character. Mm. Um, and so, you know, Fran Drescher, you know, big with the nanny at that time. And it's almost like they kind of remake the nanny to some extent where, um, you know, only he's, he's not a, he's not a, 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 a Brit in that, like the, um, the guy who was like the, I guess he was like a, um, a playwright or something that she was working for. Um, but in this case, he's, he's playing an Eastern European dictator, but that was the one that I remember. And it was also kind of interesting because it was, for me, it was like the first thing I saw of him in the theater. I guess he was in Rocketeer in, in 91, but the first one that was like sort of him spotlighted as, as being in a movie was, you know, since the Bond films was that one. And then, yeah, this comes two years later. And I do wonder if people saw some of these and thought, OK, you know, he's, he's playing a great straight man in Beautician of the Beast. In Made Men, he's not playing a straight man to anybody. He's hamming it up as this character. Uh, so he's really, it, it's not even a matter of him playing off of somebody. Like the scenes are yeah. his scenes when he's in them. Uh, so that's so in, in a way it's even better, I think, than Beautician the Beast, what he's doing here. <laughs> Yeah, because he's got he's got some great lines in this in this film. I mean, he's got uh, you know he's um, uh, there's, I, I mean he's uh, there's a scene actually where it's his uh, where he's kind of doing some menace. He's um, he's basically kind of. Uh, 
trying to interrogate there's a car crash he's interrogating it's the, the scene with the car crash and he's basically you know it's leaking gas and he's basically you've got to tell me this information otherwise i'm going to blow this car up and right. you know he's kind of leaning into the southern accent and he's going you know this car's gas tank is leaking something fierce and i'm dying for a marlboro <laughs> it's just <laughs> i mean he's really reveling in the prospect of him being uh about to burn a man alive and yeah. um you know there's um <laughs> I really like that line where he's taunting, um, you know, because later on in the film we find out that uh, that uh, you know Timothy Dalton's been having an affair with uh, Jim Belushi's uh, uh, wife, and um, you know he's taunting Jim Belushi about the fact that he's been having this affair, and you know just you know say, oh, you, you know, it's just a shame you can't satisfy her, and he says, you know, guess it takes a good old country boy to plow such fertile soil, and he just absolutely chews that line up, and it's. Just oh, it's so so much fun. Yeah, it, 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 what's fascinating is you get to this point where the like you said, like there's that scene where he's he's interrogating that guy at the car accident, and there, there's that piece in the middle where they start to thin the cast out a bit, right? Where where people start mm. to get off, and and it is that sense of like who's going to be left standing, and and I think that's one thing that I really liked about Dalton's character, like you said, is he like you said he's when when the the twists start to happen, and he's there as one of the ones who's left standing. It, it really is he, – he really plays that part so well that – you know, I think it's the strength of these kinds of movies. And the, the 90s had a lot of these movies, I think especially post-Pulp Fiction, where you had these, these sort of offbeat gangster films and, and you know, the idea of putting it in a location like this to make it even funnier that these guys from the city are interacting with these, mm. these, um, these people in the country. And, and, and for him, if he doesn't play the part the way he does it, if he doesn't do it that well – I don't think that this works. I think either A, if they had gotten somebody like a Bo Hopkins to play the character who's like known for yeah. doing that that role, I don't think it works as well. And so like he's able to play it more of like a caricature. But yeah, it 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 again, it was just it it added a thing. Like I, I always love seeing his scenes. Like every time he was in a scene, I, I always got a kick out of it. <laughs> well, it's because I think Dalton would work in a way which Bo Hopkins wouldn't work because Dalton can do the menace because he's got that rugged look and he's a bit older than he was in than when he was doing the James Bond films and and so some of the, the his lines have got kind of like harder as he's you know aged and um you know but he's still got he's still got that charm and so he, you know he can and he's such a good as he shows here, such a good actor that he can kind of like switch from one to the other as the sort of, as the shifts happen in the plot. And it feels believable. It feels like, uh, you know, three dimensional character. And I, you know, I don't think, I don't think Bo, Hop Bo Hopkins could probably do the menace, but he wouldn't, right. couldn't do, couldn't do the charm. And yeah, I think Dalton just, you know, fantastic, fantastic bit of casting here. Cause he just, yeah, absolutely nails steals every scene that he's in and he really makes that uh that character work and just like adds to this like great kind of mix of characters that we we have in this this particular piece yeah because you're right like belushi like you said he's, he's at his most belushiest in this and, uh, <laughs> and, and what's funny is like when we did royce it was almost like they were trying to put belushi the ugly american as a james bond character and saying like mm. you know this is kind of funny right if we if we mix up what we think of James Bond and we have Jim Belushi do it, whereas here he's he's just being that Belushi, but then having him opposite a James Bond in, in Dalton <laughs> and, and Dalton doing something completely different as well. Yeah, because the Belushi part, it's like right from the beginning, you just know what you're getting here, that he's playing this part. <laughs> 
<laughs> and 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 it's like you just every scene that he's in, you're expecting what he's going to be doing there with that stuff. Um, uh, so yeah, and then of course with the Michael Beach character, he's almost like a straight man to both of them, or to really to yeah. all of these characters in the movie. He's just like you know. But I I I like him. You know, he's done a lot of other stuff, um, sort of like director video stuff, but also like uh, TV shows and things like that. And so. You know, um, I was curious to see where he his character was going to go in this because, uh, you know, again, him being somebody that I know who, who's done, um, yeah. you know, he's doing more stuff at that time. I figured he was going to be someone they'd lean on. Because also initially, Michael Beach's character seems like he's he's he seems like well what's his role in this film like right. other characters are, t- are taking the taking the lead and as you say well you know this is he's a he's a kind of quality quality actor so mm. and then obviously later on into the film he kind of comes into it comes into it comes into his own so it's kind of uh, it, but he he kind of it still sort of works because he's presented as the sort of strong silent type at the beginning so you're sort of like okay well you know maybe he's just that's maybe that's just the role he's playing here but then yeah as 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 with so many of these other characters turns out they're not necessarily who they uh, first appear in this film yeah and and i will say i think those twists worked in this i think these 90s movies that, that were like this they there a lot of times these twists were were things that took a huge leap of faith the way we were sort of taking the leap of faith that you know <laughs> a, 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 an angered boyfriend would would set up a a sophisticated bomb in his his girlfriend's <laughs> car, you know, like, but this kind of, I mean, there were leaps of faith in it just because, you know, things happen in these movies where you just, you know, but, but in terms of the actual plot twists themselves, they, they, they at least made more sense, I think, um, than, than sometimes these movies can be. Yeah, I mean, I I thought that this um, I was I actually um, I think the plot twists all um, work really well, and I was, I read. Um, that apparently the script for this film initially was much more much more serious was it was i guess they were kind of like playing it more as a straight thriller but they then decided actually to to kind of introduce more sort of um uh, comedic um elements into it and you know you could you could i could totally see this um as a you know take all the comedy out and just play it as a straight thriller with you know some like former gangster like you know hiding out in a town and you know kind of gang of mob Mobsters finally track him down and they want their they want their money back you can see this exact same plot playing out but played like um played straight but um i guess you wouldn't want jim belushi in that film you'd you you know if you're going to do the you know you can go either direction with that story um but you if you're going to go down the comedy route that's you yeah probably you know that's the one you want to put belushi in if you're going something a straight as you know a straighter drama dramatic uh line you probably want to get uh probably want to have another another actor in the in the part but uh one thing you know just sort of continuing on the um, on the on the blue front i mean i kind of wondered like how much of this film was uh you know how much of kind of like some of the dialogue was was in the script and how much of it was perhaps stuff that was added by Belushi. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you had a, if you got a sense of that, just cause it just, you know, some of it, it just felt like, I mean, how do you, this is Belushi at his most Belushi. I mean, how do you, how do you, who better to write that than Jim Belushi himself? There were some scenes where I just thought, I wonder if this is like a, his own riff that he kind of came up with. Yeah, because well, so the film has, has three writers. I don't know if any of them were from the Chicago area, but that's one of the pieces that he really brings to this is, you know, his characters from Chicago. You know, Jim Belushi grew up in Chicago, 
And he really plays that piece of it up that he's a, you know, a, like the sort of Chicago, you know, like the accent, mm. he plays up the accent. And I do think you're right. I think there are aspects of this film that he may have added to it saying like, no, no, a mobster from Chicago would be saying this or doing this or, you know, like the interactions with the people in the town, the way he really plays up those interactions as this real people person who knows how to manipulate mm. other, other individuals. I think you're right. I think he, he added a certain flavor to that, that, that the script writers might not have, have considered. Yeah. And there, there, there were, and there were a couple of other um, sort of like interesting sort of like moments in the film, which kind of made me wonder if, um, you know, what they if they were kind of like other, which kind of seemed like they're random threads that are introduced into the film, but then actually sort of turn out to, to have a payoff. So there's this very sort of st the scene on thinking about that kind of like, uh, uh, the, I think it's the, it's during the uh shootout scene at the house with uh, Michael Beach and um, you know uh, Jim Belushi randomly asks him you know do you like Dion Warwick and uh, you know Michael Beach says yeah you know I like Dion Warwick and then obviously at the end of at the end of the film a Dion Warwick song like plays out as uh, as kind of uh, you know Belushi heads off into the sunset and the, yeah. and the and the and the credits start to roll but then there's another scene earlier on in the film where Jim Belushi is is asking uh, somebody like uh, you know randomly who's Puff Daddy, right. which then made me think, well maybe they were hoping to get a Puff Daddy song to kind of right. play out over the closing credits of this of this film, but then you know they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't get the rights, so they had to write in this random Dion Warwick line just to kind of tie everything together. Well, there's that, and 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 I think there's sort of this this trope at the um. In, in, in the 90s in particular of like these sort of older, you know, doughy, we could even go, uh, white guys <laughs> not understanding the concept of, of hip hop stars or rappers and their names, you know? And and so that would be a, a joke as well that like he, oh, this this old, old white guy doesn't know anything mm. about hip hop. So the, the idea of a, of a puff daddy would completely freak him out and he wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it it's funny because that's a kind of joke, right? That we, we sort of look at now as pop, potentially being racially insensitive, but also like this yes. idea that it, like it's just it's just not kind of funny anymore. And it, it's funny. There's a um, somebody on Twitter that um, he's he's a fellow writer. So I think I, I followed him just from you know people trying to get the word out of each other's books. But I I, I, don't, I think it was one of those things where I just just did. But I saw he made a tweet about Post Malone where he tried to make that same kind of joke where he's like not understanding the concept of a Post Malone or whatever it was, you know. And mm -hmm. he just got completely just brigaded, like just every, all of the fans of his music just went in there and just dove on him and just kind of just completely went for him. And it's almost like this this throwback joke that he was making that was like, you know, it's it's not really funny anymore. But back in the 90s, it was it would be, you know, if there was a Post Malone, you know, that would have been the kind of joke that, you know, Belushi would have made and we all would have gotten a kick out of it. And so, so that was the other piece of it that I think was there. It was like supposed to show that he was this out of touch white guy. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, he also makes some racially insensitive jokes. Like there's that one piece when he's in the van with the baddies. Um, and of course, you've got Michael Beach's character. And then um, one of the other, the one who's kind of the henchman who's sort of leading the the, the show, uh, yeah. played by um, Carlton Wilborn. Um, so they make a joke, right, that there's that it's like a, there's the affirmative action guy saying that the two black men are getting their job in the mob because of affirmative action. And then I can't remember the joke he makes about the Italian guy. 
Um, and then he calls the the, the Brit uh, an illegal immigrant, I think. Um, uh, he says, uh, I made a note of that. He says uh, he's kind of like dissing the group. He goes around right. them. You know, we've got we've got affirmative action over there. We've got foreign exchange and the and the and the wise guy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And and so again, like it's a kind of joke that like I think. Um, um, Larry David on his show Curb Your Enthusiasm, he actually addressed that joke, that affirmative action joke, in an episode of his show only a few years after this. So I think it was like '02, something like that, where um, he, um, I think he's going to a dermatologist, and uh, or his wife or something. There's something about that where he's going to see it, and and the dermatologist is black, and he makes a comment about him getting the job through affirmative action. He's like, what? Why, why would you say that? Like, you know, and 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 he ends up having to go and apologize to. Um, uh, to, to the guy and, and to, cause, um, his wife mm. needs some sort of medication, um, some dermatology medication and the other doctors out of town. So he has to go and apologize for it. But, it, but it is like a way of, you know, addressing that joke. And it was, it was one of those things where you wonder, like, is it just a joke that was, po- you know, like jokes that would be made in the nineties and nobody would think of it. Or was it part of like Jim Belushi's character? Like, again, like, you know, Jim Belushi trying to make this character not likable, despite the fact that yeah. he was becoming likable. Ooh, that's a difficult question without uh, without knowing uh, Jim without knowing Jim Belushi personally. It's difficult right. to difficult to, to know because I, I I agree with you. It could easily be his character, like it definitely could be his character that he's playing in in this film. But um, equally, it's definitely the type of humor that you know people did you know you know a large you know it was the the audiences kind of generally didn't have a problem with at that time obviously parts of those audiences did have a problem but uh nobody was listening to them uh so yeah it kind of uh, yeah it's hard it's hard to know like what the intent there was um and yeah uh, i guess i guess we'll 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 never know unless we uh inveigle our way into uh into jim belushi's uh social circle and uh unable to interrogate him on his uh thoughts and beliefs right, exactly yeah you you wonder because yeah i know like he obviously the whole blues music thing that maybe he would have but but see even that kind of in itself right is this idea of like well you know blacks and black music from the past is something that i can revere but this whole hip-hop thing i can't you know it's like <laughs> You know, sort of like this sort of like um, you know, with the, the noble um, minority or something like that idea that, you know, so even then you don't know. So you're right. Like we, we, we probably shouldn't um, uh, make it, it cast any aspersions potentially on, on what he was doing. But I think from the, the character standpoint, it did work. And that's I mean, th- that, that was something that seemed to happen a lot with that character. Right. Was that he he would be likable. And then he would just do something that was just so foul, you know, especially with the lying. I mean, he was just because it, it wasn't just a character who's like like withholding the truth or or sort of telling little white lies or, or like even just sort of like, you know, obfuscating a little bit. He was telling these like blatant, really like really bad lies to further himself and get himself out of the situation. He had no scruples whatsoever. <laughs> and, and it was almost a sense that, uh, it's almost like I wonder if Belushi himself looked at the character and thought, this character just seems too likable. And, and, uh, or, or if the, char- you know, the, the writers themselves were, were smart enough to notice that he was becoming likable and they wanted to make sure that wasn't the case. But it, it, was, a, it was an interesting element of the film. Yeah, definitely, definitely, because he is 
you know, he kind of is a charming character to a certain certain degree, but then he he is completely self-serving, and so he's you know ultimately using that for you know for 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 kind of like dire dire purposes. Because as you as 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 you as you were saying, like he's so just he's manipulating. I mean, he's 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 stolen and lied and cheated on pretty much everyone like on on the government on his kind of former criminal employers who he you know he he ripped off and then after ripping them off he kind of like you know sold sold them out for you know police for like f you know protection from the from the from the fbi and then you know he's just you know you know he kind of lies lies to other characters about their you know like the you know he's sort of like a cute He's offering. He offers a couple of the gang members, doesn't he? He offers them like to split the cash with them, and they they say they sort of they sort of turn it down. No, but then he's he grasses. He sort of then pretends that they were going to go along with it to to kind of like sow division amongst this crew who've kind of like been sent to collect him. And he does that like several times throughout the film. And you know, and like that poor old lady in in the shop. He doesn't care. He just leaves there like he needs to get rid of Michael Beach. Just leaves her. Um, you know with the with with the you know, holding him at gunpoint and you know Belushi doesn't care whether she lives or survives that particular that particular encounter so he is he's kind of but I think you know that makes him that that you know that I think that makes for a you know a more interesting character like I think you know characters with shades of gray are often much more interesting than characters who are more more black and white it's not to say not to say they can't be you know Superman is a very whiter than white character, but uh, you know he's he if he's done if Superman's done properly, he can he's still an interesting for uh, still an interesting character. But um, I think that I think this, I think in this case the shades of grey make for a, make for a more uh, interesting character because you kind of just you just you, you yeah you kind of kind of help sort of like him even though he he does some despicable things in this film. Well, right, because it's like even with that woman in the store, it's like, you know, so he's there with, with Michael Beach. We get this sense that he and Michael Beach are going to team up, right, and that they're going to sort mm. of get out of the situation together. And he's going to, to, to do the right thing by Michael Beach because he thinks Michael Beach is a, um, an FBI agent and he's, he's going to th – th this is his best way out. And then he's like, he's like well, i got to buy some things at this store. And the woman's like, okay, well, do you want to um, – it's interesting. She said cash or charge, and I was like – a place like that in the early, in, in the nineties would take a, a, a credit card, um, and then it realized what she meant by charge was that no, like he could run up a tab at this place, um, which is interesting, right? That there was still that concept. Um, I remember my my dad talking about growing up and having that concept in his town, and he was like decrying the fact that you couldn't do that anymore um, at places, but apparently this is a place you could. And so when he's writing in the ledger, he writes here a big note saying that this guy is a criminal and he's got a gun on her, he's got a gun on him, and all of that stuff, and. Of course, like you said, she pulls her gun out to, um, to you know, sort of hold Michael Beach at bay while um, Belushi feigns that he's going out back to call the police when, in fact, he's just running off and he steals her car and, and all of that. And I think that was a big moment for me because I was really starting to like Belushi's character. And <laughs> and, and it was almost like that was that was placed there purposely. I think it was placed there purposely for a few reasons, right? It's like, mm. one, the movie's starting to slow down, right? It's starting to get easy in a way, yeah. right? That, that these these characters have split off and it's making it like easy for us to, to, to like characters and it's almost settling into something that feels like it's going to have an easy uh, resolution. 
And, and, and so it, it really helps to, one, make us not feel as comfortable anymore. That makes the film more complicated. But then also it does make us not like Belushi as much. Um, so I thought like all of that really worked there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it, it kind of, yeah, I think that's that's a moment, definitely a moment where you kind of feel like you 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 definitely on the sort of the home the home stretch there, right. and you like I think the I think it's also getting to that point where okay, if there are too many more twists after this, <laughs> this is just getting into the 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 realms of the absurd of the absurd, and that scene right. is actually pretty. Uh, pretty near near the right. finish and you know there's still still one more twist after that <laughs> but it's kind of you know what i i didn't see that one i didn't see that one coming i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna reveal it i didn't see right. that one coming i think just because i was so dizzy from there being so many twists <laughs> yeah. previously to that that i hadn't really like i mean it's so when you think back on it afterwards it's so obvious like right. yes but yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, by then I was so discombobulated. I that one it, that one took me by surprise. Yeah, because that's the other element of this film, right? That they had to make sure they didn't lean too much on. It's the fact that a lot of times it's Belushi's lies that are perpetuating the film, right? That we're mm. we're we're into this sort of easy situation, you know, whether it's at the very beginning where he's he's been captured by these guys, and you know, what are we going to do to to not just have him? you know, them drive out in the van and get the money, right? We need something to, to fix it. So then it's his lies that get us there. And it seems like that's kind of throughout the film. It, it Whenever the film hits a sticking point where it looks like it's going to resolve itself, it's Belushi's lies <laughs> that, that twist the film. Um, and I think... Well, well, Oh, I think ahead. we get the we get the I think we get the payoff for that um, at the at the end of the film where yeah. we have this that scene with uh, Belushi and Michael Beach where Michael Beach is clear it's just clearly just had enough of Belushi <laughs> by this point and just <laughs> just starts shooting different limbs of his body and he's like Belushi's he's run he's kind of run out of road by this point because he's just now I'm gonna I'm gonna keep gonna keep shooting arms and legs until you just answer my question straight. Yeah, there's almost like we were talking about the the mother being pistol whipped in the, um, the previous moments, potentially being in a plaza. There's almost a sense too that Michael Beach is us as the as the watcher, right? That if we're just tired of of these lies and the fact that we can't get a straight answer out of him about anything, it's just like it's almost like he's us when he's shooting him in the arms there, like that. Um, that uh, yeah, that you just like we we you know, it's like watching so you know whatever, like you know a a a, a trial where where somebody is. Uh, <laughs> constantly not wanting to tell what you know uh, oh it could have been that or it might have you know i don't know you know when it's like you just want to be like no just just answer the question and and, and uh, yeah that's like michael beach just you know not that i want to be shooting anybody who's who's obfuscating like that but it's it, I, I, yeah i kind of felt like it, yeah he was he was us when he was doing that uh yes i think we we are all michael beach in that particular moment <laughs> yes exactly well well, well will as, as we're wrapping up here anything else on on uh made men that you wanted to mention uh, a couple, a couple of things. Yeah. So, uh, I, I wanted to give a shout out to the director of uh, of Made Men, uh, Lewis Moore now, who uh, directed uh, Soldier Boys with Michael Dudikoff and Carnosaur <laughs> Two, which uh, both include exploding uh, helicopters. So, uh, my uh, my appreciation to, uh, to to Lewis Moore now. Um, and then, then uh, there was a. Uh, I hope you appreciate this, Matt. There was a little small moment. Do you remember the small moments in this film where? 
um, uh, Belushi's having that kind of uh, confrontation with Dalton and his wife, and he kind of finds out that Dalton's been um, uh, d- that his wife's kind of been cheating on him with uh, with Dalton, and um, you know he's like uh, you know the idea is that she's been going off like once a week supposedly to like Tulsa to to watch watch a movie get her hair done, but actually she's she's been off boning uh timothy dalton but uh you know jim belushi is kind of like receiving this realizing that he's been shocked in this way and he kind of says what what do you mean you didn't see titanic like 42 times and um then there's this then then he kind of goes off on a little riff and he sort of says you know i i got you uh, i got you i got the i got you the titanic video it was it was really expensive and you know it was really it was really hard to get hold of and um I thought this doesn't make this doesn't make any sense, and uh, I, I I found a, a 1998 article from the San Francisco Chronicle, which was all about the uh, video home release of uh, Titanic, the movie, and and actually. Um, uh, you know, in anticipation of this film coming out, 24 million units were shipped of, uh, uh, you know, of the Titanic video to like stores around uh, the country. Um, stale, sales were apparently steady, but not dramatic. So it was kind of seen to be underperforming in its sales. And it was selling for 19.99 in stores and 9.95 online. So that that's that particular kind of riff by Jim Belushi doesn't make a lot of sense. It, Titanic was easily available and it wasn't expensive. And, you know, uh, I hope it didn't spoil the movie too much for you, Matt. Oh, well, because, right, because was he trying to say because they were living out in the middle of nowhere that it was hard to get Titanic? Because, um, <laughs> yeah, that seemed odd too, right? That, like, I mean, you're talking about, like, the, the biggest movie ever. I mean, the one thing I got a kick out of, right, I guess, is the fact that because Titanic is a long movie, right, that you've got yourself a good amount of runway um, to go out and do uh, all kinds of bad things. But, yeah, it's... It, it it's yeah i mean titanic cast such a large shadow that um i guess a film like this felt like it was sort of stuck underneath it and needed to, to poke fun at it but you <laughs> you're right i mean one of the things here in the united states is um i think they're they're, they're charity shops in england we call them thrift stores here in the us but mm. anytime you go to the vhs section of a thrift shop here in the us you usually see that double tape ver, you know um home video release of titanic everywhere it's just sort of like <laughs> There's usually like five or six lined up next to each other. Um, so not only was it something that was easy to get, but um, a lot of people have been doing their best to get rid of it um, because you could, you could, it, 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 pretty much every place that sells things secondhand has, has at least one or two copies of it. Well, one random uh, thought or fact that uh, that uh, came into my head as to why that is in the film is that um, apparently um, this film was shot in Spanish Fork in in Utah. Now, uh, and apparently it was um, a, it's a it's a very conservative. Uh, sort of religiously conservative town. I think it's like very high Mormon population. I think Utah's got like a Mormon population about you know over sixty, over sixty percent. And apparently, this 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 town where they were filming this were um, kind of like basically. Uh, like the video stores were basically editing Titanic themselves. They were cutting out like uh, one of the scenes in there, which kind of, that's like a a love scene. And so there was like controversy around, well, you know, should these stores be able to unilaterally edit, edit films? So I I wonder, I wonder if this was a, a kind of like a little bit of, you know, Belushi just kind of throwing in a bit of improv kind of based on where they were filming and kind of, you know, touching back on that. I don't know. I didn't even think of that because when you look at the kinds of movies that um, uh, Louis Mornell makes, 
right? They're all the kind of movies that a place like that either wouldn't sell or would edit, right? I mean, you know, Soldier Boys and Carnosaur are obvious ones, but, you know, he did the, the, the direct-to-video Hitcher sequel, um, a direct-to-video Joyride sequel. Uh, those are all things that they would, they would edit. So that's a really great point, too, that, um, yeah, because I think there was a documentary that was made about that because I think directors actually sued because um, there, there was like a company in, in it there that, that was doing these edits. And I think they, they were sued by the, the Directors Guild or something like that. Um, it was like, it was a huge deal uh, about mm. it. But uh, yeah, it makes that makes a lot of sense that, that they would have made it sound like it would have been hard for him to get Titanic in that area. <laughs> That's maybe what it was. That might have been, or at least uncut. Was. Right, exactly. Yeah, and and again, I don't know what's being cut there because um, I don't remember the movie being all that racy. But you know, I guess there's there's yeah for, for those, those those too much for the Mormons. Right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it that's a, that I never really considered that. Yeah, it, it but it makes sense, I guess. You know that that might have been where the joke was was that like you can't even get Titanic around here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was thinking that because um, it took place in Utah, but there's a lot of corn in the film. And um, it's one of the more interesting things that people, it, it, even in the United States, don't realize is how much corn is grown and, and used here in America for everything. Um, essentially, like, like, you know, obviously, you know, like any kind of sugar is made out of corn syrup. Uh you know, so many products are just, it's just, it, it's essentially just how, how they can change corn. And, uh, and part of the, the thing was um, with, with NAFTA, with the um, North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, the United States flooded Mexico with their cheap corn and completely just crippled the corn growing industry. Because we always think of Mexican food, right? It's like tortillas and mm. things like that. And yeah. And so when I was seeing the corn in this film and I'm like, well, you know, they're making a lot of noise here or like, you know, like it feels like, you know, you, you can't just do this kind of stuff in these cornfields. I realized that cornfields are just so plentiful in America and they're just these sort of these big corporate entities and just like these big massive like for, for, for miles that actually no, you probably could film an entire movie in a cornfield and no one would know you were doing it. Um, so, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's one of the things with with American food, like the amount of corn that, that Americans consume if they're just eating you know, processed grocery store foods. It's, uh, I, I didn't realize it until, um, I think there was a movie called like Fast Food Nation or something that actually went into it. And um, yeah, it's it's absolutely, like there's just, you know, universities in the Midwest that just study uh, how to do different things with corn um, to, to make food and things like that out of it. It's amazing. Well, hope, you know, hopefully the, the scenes in fields in Made Men, uh, you know, if you do watch the film, hopefully, you know, your um, your enjoyment of the film won't be um, too hampered by knowing the devastation that uh, the U.S. corn industry has had on the Mexican economy. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, and, and you know, how much how much Americans. Yeah. Well, much, yeah. How much corn is out there? Just, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. But um, yeah, well, 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 well as, as we're wrapping up here, anything else to uh, just about the, the the two main stars that we're talking about here um pierce brosnan and, and timothy dalton are about about bond in general um i i think that um i really enjoyed watching made men because i saw a side of uh, timothy dalton that i don't think i've really seen before or certainly have not seen um a lot of so uh, i i you know um i really enjoyed watching the uh, watching this film and um yeah just kind of learning a little bit more about the kind of craft and skill that uh, that that Dalton has uh as an actor and yeah live, live wire i guess 
it is yeah as we were talking about earlier it's kind of interesting to sort of this period the early 90s before you know between um uh remington steel or uh, and uh between and before bond kind of like what pierce brosnan was, was was doing and it's kind of interesting i don't know if you've got any thoughts on it but like i think pierce brosnan has had a very good post bond career i think Sean Connery had a very good post-Bond career. Roger Moore, less so. And Timothy Dalton, kind of, he's, I mean, he didn't really do anything that has really stood the test of time before Bond and and really not a lot after. But he's kind of, as, as we were talking about here, he's a, he's a really very good actor. It's kind of strange how he's sort of never been at least in one or two sort of I know better films or, or good films. I guess kind of. I mean, he seemed to be very popular in Penny Dreadful, that TV series. He seemed to be he seemed to be doing some sort of good work there. But um, I don't know. I kind of feel like uh, I feel like sort of Dalton's. I don't know. I feel like I get a sense of perhaps a bit of a wasted talent. I don't know. Yeah, I completely agree. Because it, it feels like Dalton has sort of he he's sort of like like settled into these roles that are slightly better than made men or slightly the films are films and TV shows are slightly better than made men. Um, you know, whether it's a uh, voice work in, 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 um, in cartoons that are popular, like the toy story cartoons, or, um, like you said, like uh, these TV roles, um, you know, he did, uh, uh Penny Dreadful, he also did a, a Chuck a TV series that was popular in the U S uh, doing the doom patrol show now. So it's like, almost like he settled into this sort of just like a kind of a solid acting career, then, mm. you know, he gets work and he gets work that probably pays him well. And so it's not like the bigger stuff that you, you'd want from him there that, you, you know, that you, you think that would be nice. Um, and like Pierce Brosnan, I think, on the other hand, he's he's sort of I don't know, it's almost like he transitioned better. I mean, yes, he's doing direct to video stuff now, but he's also doing bigger things. He's in the new Black Adam movie. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think he I, the other thing, too, that I think happened with him was that because he got into more Bond films, it's almost like he was transitioning earlier. Um, you know, he's doing films like Thomas Crown Affair yeah. in 1999. And I think it's almost like maybe it's possible that maybe he saw what happened to the other Bonds. That he saw what happened to Roger Moore, saw what happened to uh, um, uh, to Timothy Dalton and thought, OK, I, I need to get out ahead of this and start getting my my roles. And, you know, because, you know, I mean, he did Thomas Crown Affair before Die Another Day, which I think, I think he did, right? Yeah, he did it in 99. So um, yeah. actually did it the same year a Bond film came out. The World Is Not Enough came out the same year as Thomas Crown Affair. And you don't usually see Bond actors doing movies that feel Bondish um, mm. at the same time. And so I think that might've been for him that he, he kind of got out in front of it. And yes, he's doing some direct video stuff now, but I think he, overall he's, he's sort of managed to navigate those waters better. Yeah, I would, I, I would, I would definitely agree. And um, yeah, uh, a little bit, little bit of a shame for for Dalton, but uh, you know, he he seems to be. Hopefully, he's making some decent money. He seems doesn't he's he's not he's not doesn't seem to be moping around the place looking depressed. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend too much of my spare time worrying about uh, Timothy Dalton. For sure. Yeah, but I think for people out there who you know, kind of thinking what happened to Dalton after this. I think Made Men is a really great watch. And I think um, the, the YouTube version of it is not the best version. Um, and I don't know if you watch the same one that I did where the credits get clipped and then you get another half hour of the beginning of the movie 
Um, I don't know if that was the one that, that you got, but that's the one here in the States that we have. Yeah, I did watch that. And I was so, I was very frustrated by that. So I actually um, bought uh, the DVD. I found it very cheap oh. online. So, so I bought the, I bought the, bought the DVD so I could uh, watch the, uh, watch it properly and enjoy it because I did, I really enjoyed it watching on YouTube and I thought, oh, God damn it. I want to watch this film properly. So I thought, you know, for a couple of quid, I can get a, a decent, decent copy here. Yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, I think the problem with Belushi is he did so much stuff in that period that it's hard for, like, all of it to get better releases. But I think, you know, this one, Royce is another one. I think some of the stuff that he did in that period, it, it, it could use, you know, it, it definitely uses another look. I think people should check it out. And I think you're right. Like, I think Made Men is one that for people that collect phys physical media, it's a good one to have in your collection. Because it, it is, it's a fun movie. It doesn't drag that much. And for that late 90s period, there wasn't a lot happening. I think for me, I feel like that the, the wave kind of crests with direct-to-video action in the mid-90s. And for this one yeah. to come out and and not, you know, it, it kind of comes from that 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 Pulp Fiction mode as well. And it doesn't bite on Pulp Fiction too much. It doesn't it doesn't fall into the, the, the uh, pitfalls that I think a lot of movies from that time did that were trying to do what this one didn't. I think a big reason why it doesn't fall in those pitfalls is Dalton uh, has a really great performance. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think th this was an era when there's a I think there's a bit more money in DTV. So yeah. I think the film just benefits from, you know, have, being able to have like good actors throughout the cast, obviously spend a bit more time making it, writing it and all and all of that. So, yeah, I think um, it's a kind of yeah, a good good time. If you're going to be appearing in this type of fair, that was it was a good era to be to be making those type of films because there was still like, you know, there's uh, they still some some good quality uh in there yeah yeah and i think that that might be a great place to leave it um but before we wrap up will uh anything that you want to plug well sure i want to i'd love to plug um uh, my work at exploding helicopter so if you are interested about the strange way that uh, helicopters in movies uh, keep exploding then uh, come and check out my website explodinghelicopter.com where i've got uh, reviews of films that include exploding helicopters got lots of uh, facts and information about uh, the actors and directors and uh, you know kind of earliest film with an exploding helicopter etc uh, we're also a podcast as well so uh, you can find us on anywhere you listen uh, to podcasts and uh, uh, matt has been on uh, multiple times as, as a guest we've uh, We've done some interesting, fun films uh, on there. So uh, yeah, come and uh, check us out uh, on uh, on the come check out the podcast. And then also we're on social media. So come and find me um, at Chopper Fireball, where uh, you know, I, as I know you do, Matt. We I post uh, post sort of you know clips of uh, of uh, exploding helicopters in films, often uh, uh, amusing ones, um, ones that explode in strange ways. So uh, yeah, if that sounds interesting to you, you know where to find us. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, you know, the, the site and the podcast are fantastic. And I always, yeah, I always, I'm subscribed and I'm always uh, sort of catch the most recent one, um, which I, it, it's always, always a lot of fun, uh, the conversations that you have around the film and then, then, you know, mentioning the, uh, the exploding helicopter piece. But the, the, the Twitter, um, I think for people that aren't following you on Twitter, <laughs> it's just the, the, the videos that you, the, the sort of clips of films that you post are just absolutely fantastic. I think, one of my favorites most recently was um, Martin Cove in a, 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 a alligator, large crocodile film um, <laughs> where he's riding in a helicopter and the, the alligator or the crocodile grabs the helicopter and pulls it into the water. 
Um, and actually, the way the helicopter looked, it looked like the helicopter plunging into the arena in sudden death. So, um, so even there, it's like you see so many of the different uh, exploding helicopters on Twitter on, on your your Twitter page that you start to even see some similarities, or like you know where where they're reusing uh, elements from other exploding helicopters. Well, thank you very much. Yes, the one you're talking about, that's uh, Crocodile 2 Death Swamp or Crocodile 2 Death Roll, depending on um, which territory you purchase your DVD. A, uh, yeah, a marvellous e- e- example of the art of, uh, of uh, helicopter explosions in film. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think at this point you're, you're up over 600 or you're closing in on, on, on 700 at this point. I We're guess. closing in on 700. It's, <laughs> it's, ter- it's terrifying, Matt. I thought I, I thought I would have them all catalogued by now. Right. I mean, when you first got into this, I know we're, we're, we're kind of, we're with the, the wrap up or when you, did you like, obviously, you know, like it's one of those things, right? You're watching movies and you're like, I'm noticing a lot of exploding helicopters in movies, but when you realize the depths of just how far this goes down, um, it, it, was that a shock to you even like that, that, that it, it, it's so frequent? Yes, I it definitely, because I, I started, uh, you know, like cataloging um, exploding helicopters and films in 2009. And if anything, the, the, the kind of, I thought probably within two, I don't know, two, three, four years, I'd probably be on top of like uh, the number of films with exploding helicopters but it's it the, if anything the the number of like new films i'm finding with exploding helicopters is accelerating so i would like to watch every known film with an exploding helicopter um so uh, as you were saying matt i think we're i think we're up into the like 670s now in the number of known films i've watched just over 550 and i can barely like uh, I, so I was kind of close to getting to under a hundred films still to watch. I can barely keep I can barely keep pace with the new ones that are, that are coming in, unless I kind of you know basically stop working and just you know dedicate sixteen hours a day to watching films with exploding helicopters, which is not not realistic. So yeah, I kind of thought I would be on top of it by now, and if anything, the pace of new stuff coming in is accelerating. It's it's a scary thought that you know even now. 14 no 13 years into into this task i'm i'm you know i'm i'm no no nearer the top of that sisyphean hill that i've uh, that you know well, because one of the things with me with the direct-to-video movies is most direct-to-video like the two movies we talked about today they both clock in at a, at a cool like 80 to 90 minutes um and so you're in and out very quickly one of the things i discovered like not just the fact that you're doing blockbusters that often have exploding helicopters and those movies get in the two and a half to three hour range. But a lot of those Bollywood movies are also in the three hour <laughs> range. And so like when you've got exploding helicopters in those, it's like, you know, again, that's, 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 you know, the, the, the amount of work that you did for this podcast here, you're, you're talking about mm. one Bollywood movie just to, to witness the explosion. So it, it is much more probably yeoman's work than you were expecting going in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm kind of oh, I, my heart does sink when um, yeah, some new three-hour twenty Bollywood film is discovered to have an exploding helicopter. Whereas, you know, if you're if you're watching one of these um, sort of you know Filipino shot exploding hutters from the from the 1980s, they're probably like 75, 80 minutes long. So you know, like you can you can you can knock a couple of those off, and you're still not even halfway through one of these Bollywood films. Yeah. And I can make the decision, right? I can make the editorial decision to say, you know, I'm not going to review that movie. Unless it's got like a big name, like a dolphin or something like that. <laughs> I can usually say, you know, uh, you know, hour 55 minutes on that Netflix film, I'm not going to watch it. You know, I think the longest one that I ever watched for the site was when um, 
it was I was calling you my thousandth review, and I, I asked mm. people like what they wanted, and I think Mitch from the Video Vacuum was like, "You got to do The Irishman." And I was like, okay, all right, I'll do the Irishman, you know? And I, I, I remember, I think I did it like in three nights, I think. I was like, oh, like multiple. So that's like the record for the longest. But, but see, I can make that decision of like, ah, you know what, I'm not going to do that movie. I'm going to do, you know, again, unless it's got like a big name in it, I don't have mm-hmm. to do it. Whereas in your case, if it's got the exploding helicopter and yeah, it's a three hour and 20 minute Bollywood, which I didn't realize because I wanted to get into some of those movies myself. And I, I was shocked to, to find out that they were that long. Yeah, I really need to. Uh, I yeah, I really need to kind of like look into or understand kind of what the what the kind of cinema going or cinema viewing culture is in India that these 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 films are so are so long because yeah. I mean part of it is because like some of you know the kind of like the the these the big sort of like entertainment ones will have like five or six songs in so obviously mm-hmm. the the kind of story stops because they okay we've got a you know four to five minute kind of like you know song and dance number here so that obviously adds to the to the runtime but there is there there just does seem to be this kind of like uh, yeah culture of the like, much longer films so quite yeah what lies behind it i uh i don't yet know the answer but I'd, i would uh, i'd love to find out there's lots of lots of it's, it's definitely an area of of um of kind of like uh, world cinema that uh that i'm you know that's the great thing about films there's so so many different countries so many different cultures so many different like takes on on films so it's, it's great exploring uh great exploring them all even even if uh it does sometimes mean three and a half hour investment of time just to watch one film yeah, and to, to, for people out there that when it comes to your Twitter site is that you do the hard work of the three hours and 20 minutes, but then you <laughs> find the one scene in it. That, these scenes in these Bollywood movies are just amazing. But like, you know, going on your Twitter and seeing like this, this large, like, like sort of like, you know, two or three minute thing where people are dancing on on motorcycles and shooting at each other. And, you know, and, they, and you're wondering even where the exploding helicopter comes in. And then when it happens, it just it's so spectacular, like these uh, these actions. That's why I wanted to get into them more. But like, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a large commitment when you're looking at that. Yeah, I I watch them and I clip them so you don't have to. Exactly, exactly, perfect. Well, well, thank you, Will, for coming on. This was a really fun conversation, and and thank you everybody for listening. And uh, we'll be back soon. Bye, everyone. <laughs>